Welcome to the Startup Microdose podcast with me, Oliver Jones, and my able co-host, Ed Stevens. This conversation is with Robert Llewellyn. Robert has walked many paths and worn many guises in his, in his extraordinary career. Some of you will know him best for portraying Crichton in Red Dwarf, others as the presenter of Scrap Peep Challenge, but he's now known best for The Fully Charged Show, a YouTube channel and blog he launched 10 years ago to advocate electric vehicles and renewable energy systems. The channel now has over 600,000 subscribers, gets 2 million hits a week, and stages packed out live shows in the UK and US. For avid followers of Fully Charged, this conversation will add further colour to an extremely colourful character. We discuss his first engineering experiences on a hippie commune in Wales, how shoemaking led him to perform at the Edinburgh Fringe and from there into TV, and what a conversation between him and Jeremy Clarkson might look like. On a personal note, or as my notes say, insert shameless plug, earlier in the year I launched elmodrive.com, a platform allowing users to take out flexible subscriptions on an electric car with the option to include everything from insurance to fuel in the monthly payment. And through that, I've been lucky enough to work with a fully charged team in promoting the Elmo EV suitability tool. So this was a conversation I couldn't wait to have, and it didn't disappoint. So without further ado, and with indescribable pleasure, we bring you Robert Llewellyn. Okay, well, we are absolutely thrilled to be joined today by Robert Llewellyn. Robert, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. No, great. Thank you for inviting me. Now, you are an, and have been a, a jack of many trades, actor, <laughs> writer, author, comedian. Some people will know you best for Crichton in Red Dwarf, others for presenting Scrap Peep Challenge. But now I think it's probably fair to say that you're best known for, or most people will know you for, for being the face and voice and founder of the fantastic Fully Charged show. So we're really keen to talk about that journey, that 10-year journey. But to kick off, I'd like to ask you, given that your career has taken a somewhat eccentric path, <laughs> yes. I'd, I'd like to begin by asking what you wanted to be when you grew up, how you view what actually happened. I mean, it is a, it is a big mystery. I think I was sort of, uh, certainly my parents pushed me into formal education. So I was a, quite a bright kid, I think, as a little, uh, you know, a primary school child. And I passed an exam called the 11 plus, which I think was disbanded probably 30 years before you were born, which you took a, an exam at 11. You either went to a secondary modern school, this is in the United Kingdom, or a grammar school. And I passed it and went to a grammar school. And so they had this vision that I would be a, an Oxbridge student in a tweed jacket with leather elbow patches studying, you know, ancient Greek yeah. and philosophy or something. Yeah. That didn't quite happen. <laughs> I was a bit of a disappointment for them. And I didn't know, I, they told me those things and it meant nothing to me. I think I wanted to be an engineer. I wanted to build a giant steam engine, water mill, pumping station. I love big Victorian steam engines and beam engines and weird things with brass pipes and valves and that hissed and burnt coal. You know, I was fascinated <laughs> with all that stuff. Um, a bit, they're a bit out of vogue at the moment. Yes, slightly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> out of fashion. But... You know, I didn't. I, so I didn't really have a like a focused thing I wanted to do. But I, you know, those were things I was interested in. I learnt to drive at the age of eleven. I think it would have been ten or eleven years old in a go kart. But my my elder brother is a has been. He's now retired. A, a automotive engineer. His whole career, very skilled, and he can actually make stuff. I'm quite good at watching people make stuff <laughs> and trying to understand how things work. But did but did, did he make that go kart and then you were the test pilot? 
No, he drove it as well, but okay. I had the advantage of being way smaller than yeah. him. He's very, I mean, he's way much bigger than me. He's much taller than I am. So at that age, I was this tiny little scritty thing. Yeah. So I'd sit in it, and it was like it had nothing in it. It was driving on its own because <laughs> I was so like, so it went like stink when I was in it. And it was a bit slower because he was a much bigger, heavier lad. As mm-hmm. a sort of, he would have been 14, something like that. Um, you know, and it was great fun. And we learned to, I kind of learned to drive after a fashion I learnt how to skid round corners and you know spin cars out into the so there were a lot of around where we lived in Northamptonshire quite near Silverstone mm. there were a lot of disused airfields from World War II when I was a kid that hadn't been reclaimed so there was lots of places like that where we could take a go-kart and thrash the hell out of it and there's no one around I mean it's totally unregulated and uh, friend's driveway I think we we used a friend's driveway to a posh house you know where they had a, like a mile long drive so I did quite a lot of quite now looking back scary driving at that age you have no fear you don't know because you don't know what happens if you're you, invincible yeah if you drive into that tree and it, this car this go-kart would have maybe done 35 40 miles an hour yeah. so it wasn't like crazy but you hit a tree at 35 miles an hour when yeah. you're 12 <laughs> stuff yeah. it wouldn't be good um but yeah so but i didn't know what i wanted to do all i knew was what i didn't want to do so i had a very very long list of things i didn't, I didn't want to work in a bank like my yeah. dad didn't want to join the army didn't want to fight people uh, didn't want to be a racist you know it was yeah. quite a long list yeah. good things <laughs> you know sort of that, that kind of stuff was uh, had a girlfriend at school who was very ardent feminist so then I realised I didn't want to be sexist, but I didn't quite know how to do that. So mm. I managed to be sexist for many decades, <laughs> but accidentally. Yeah. Um, and what was happening culturally at that time was there was a, a kind of big movement amongst young people to reject straight society, as we as they would have described it. So the straight lace society, or- yeah, straight lace or established society, okay. and build and all. So instead of trying to change that, they were going, no man, it can't be changed. It will destroy itself. We'll create an alternative. So it was the, an alternative society. It was a, a different way of living. So that I found very appealing, and I lived in a commune. This is the age of 16, 17, in Wales, on the Black Mountains in Wales, a place called Lambachawi, which was a it wasn't well organised or or politically motivated. It was basically a bunch of people who were slightly mad, and a lot there was a lot of breeding going on. But I was luckily too young to get involved in the breeding, so that you'd see children and you go, I don't know who's. You would look. There was loads of kids and lots of women, and they were happy hippies. And a pig used to come into the kitchen every morning and clean the floor, and uh, like a big pig, mad. not a little pig, a massive pig would smash the door open. <laughs> And it was friendly, and we'd all give it a scratch, and it would wander off outside again. And do a, luckily never did a poo in the house because pig poo. But were you good. were you all all teenagers? No, they were all older. Okay. they were older okay. than me. Yeah, so I was definitely the youngest. So there. It wasn't wasn't a ship without a rudder. So to speak. it was, but oh, it, it was, was okay. old. It was older people. That, but they were, it was half well organised. So they one of those guys, two of the guys there, were engineering graduates from Oxford. They'd done engineering degrees. They built a wind turbine on the hill behind this dilapidated but quite big old farmhouse but this is a wooden tower mm. with wheel bearing from a transit van and then a, 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 an alternator from a big truck and then the blades were made out of old bins old sort of storage bins that we cut with you know so I helped do that really like scrap heap I mean yeah. bizarrely mm. similar mm-hmm. and because that they were one of them had a bad back, so I would climb up this wooden tower, which was pretty precarious, but I didn't mind climbing things, to oil it or to do something. It was terrible. But my little bedroom was at the back of the farmhouse with a little tiny dormer window. Mm. 
that was the only window where you could see this wind turbine from the house, but you could also hear it. So I'd be in bed at night hearing, as this wretched thing was spinning around. It was terribly noisy. And if it was very windy, the bin blades that, that made it turn would bend in and hit the tower. So then you go, and you'd get woken up and to go straight oh, back up the tower. And then the next day we'd have to go and bend all the bindeds back. You know. But it did generate electricity that they stored in truck batteries on the kitchen floor. Really? Jesus, the danger of it. And the kid, there was little toddlers walking around with open... We eventually did put them in a box, I think. And that would run the lights in the house. So there were, But they were really low wattage. I don't know what the lights... But they knew how to do that. I wouldn't have known how to do any of that. They knew how to wire up a house. Because it, no, it had no lighting at all. It never had had it. It was uh, off the grid. You know, it was a, fam- a family had lived there up to about four years before we were there with oil lamps since yeah. 1806, you know. So it was a pretty wild unreconstructed place you know so it was very rough so you 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 really went into the wilderness i mean that's a long that's a long trajectory away from parental stamp of approval yeah, yeah no they would not my parents would have freaked out i mean they didn't ever come visit me there they did visit me and i did keep i did fall out with them but i made up with them so uh, you know they they forgave me in the long run so how did you leave this paradise uh i just got I think just it just got too much. Yeah. I just needed a bath. The, the, the without, career opportunities of being more than a blade technician yeah, were. Yeah, and it, I was so poor, and they were, and some of them were really profoundly mad. I mean, they really were bonkers. <laughs> they, they, they were slightly too much. Uh, very, I'm sure, organic and ethically produced marijuana being consumed, right. and I, that bored me. I wasn't so I was never a very good hippie. I wasn't very good. At, I could do the hair mm. and the clothes, but I couldn't do the. St- I was so bored. People mm. being stoned, just and again, oh Christ! Whereas those two engineer dudes, I love them because they were mad. They had insane hair. They were crazy, but they made stuff. You know, yeah. they were always out the back fixing the van or the Land Rover that, that we all used. So there was elements of it that I loved. No one had their own money. You mm-hmm. had to put all the money you earned into a pot, and that was used to feed everybody. And so you'd often just wander in. I'd be chopping wood. I'd wander in, and there was a meal. It was cooked because it was someone But the pig was never going to be eaten at any point. We never, I don't, we never had the pig. The pig belonged to the farmer. The farmer who had lived in this farmhouse <laughs> yeah. lived in a beautiful, centrally heated, brick, ugly bungalow just up the road. Nice and warm and dry. Because the, the first person to worry about the purse strings would be dear old pig, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, the pig, I don't think, I think we were all vegetarian. I can't even remember. Because yeah. I was, yes, that was later that I was made myself kill animals because I thought it wasn't right to eat meat without knowing how you produce it. You know, that was an ethical mm. decision on my part. I but mean, when I say animals, I'm chickens, ducks and rabbits. That's all I've ever killed. I haven't killed a pig or a cow. Mm. Where does the killing fit into the story? <laughs> I don't know. No, it doesn't. It was just a thing I did when I was still a hippie. I'm just remembering oh, see, see. You know, how yeah. life changed when I cut my hair off. Then yeah. I became different. But so I st- when I had long hair, I also had a shotgun and a bow and arrow, <laughs> <laughs> which may sound peculiar. <clears throat> but I lived out in the sticks, so I was kind of wild a wild man. This just shows you no amount of interview prep will ever prepare you for <laughs> an interview. <laughs> I never thought I'd be talking to you about bow hunting. And <laughs> I was pretty rubbish with a with a bow and arrow, but I was quite good with a shotgun. But that's a little bit easier for rabbits. Yeah, than any other did I didn't do. And I mean, this is minimal. This is very minimal. I found it very disturbing and distressing mm. to take an animal's life and then skin it and gut it and cook yeah. it. You know, yeah. it wasn't like nothing. I didn't just shrug it off. It freaked me out. You mm. know. Yeah. But I ha- thought I had to do it because I was eating meat. And I thought, well, I can't eat meat and go, which is 
I always think this has always been my ambition in my life. <laughs> that, was, that was an early ambition, was to introduce a meat license so that when you're 17, 19, and you want to eat meat, you go to a special place, government-run, clean, tidy slaughterhouse, and you put on all the right kit, mm. you've got specialist people who help you, and then they bring a cow in, and you just have to kill the cow yeah. properly, like you do in a slaughterhouse, and then gut it and hang it up and cut the meat off. And then you, once you've done that, you pass your test like a driving license, you've got a le- license, you can eat meat. Yeah, yeah. And the meat-eating population in this country would be 5%. Yes. Because <laughs> yeah. it's so removed from our lives. Where it, Even in my father's generation, it wasn't. You would be on a farm and you'd see the pig being killed or the... You'd kill the chickens and... You you'd know, know its name, even. Yeah, you'd know yeah. its name. Yeah. Well, they probably didn't name them, I think. But yeah, I don't know, yeah. Maybe. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's so funny hearing these ideas reborn, I guess. Yes. We're sort of facing the same things. I mean, and yeah, maybe there's different means of, of acting on them now. But it really, I think young people have always had a desire to move the needle towards yes. a sort of more moralistic... Slightly more... Oh, absolutely. Idealistic. Yeah, yeah. idealistic and it really depends then whether... You know, and I think that's the journey I've been on, is that the easy route and i and i've witnessed it in some people it's not actually that many of my peers but of my generation say people who are in there now in their 60s but were radical extreme you know vegans vegetarians feminists gay men you know who eventually become a bit more conservative and that's the yeah. theory you know mm. that you, and actually i think i've if anything i've gone the other way <laughs> you know that i don't think i don't feel like that anymore i don't feel like well you know young people should just buckle down and get a job and mm. but, you know no tear the place to bits it's much more important that that your generation goes no this is wrong mm. is that because of, do you think that's in part because of the platform that you now have it feels like you ought to have strong opinions well, it's possible i don't yes i don't know quite what motivates it but i don't you know when i when i say the word conservative i actually don't mean anything to do with in in a sense politics or the yeah. conservative party mm. you know they kind of rake it all in and want to keep their bit mm. i'm just going no just don't worry about it because it makes you ill you know, that's what you realise as you're older. It doesn't. It's not good for you. It's much better if you're a bit more relaxed about it. And you know, I, and also you also have to accept massive levels of hypocrisy. You know, that, that's what I, the theory. And then in practice, I owned two properties and yeah. two cars, and I'm a fucking baby booming arsehole. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then you go, well, do I give it? I I don't really want to just give it away. Can, yeah. I, can I live there for a bit longer, please? <laughs> We're all going to, I mean, the thing is, I think in 10 years' time, we'll all be dead and the property market will collapse because all the posh houses will be, and who's going to buy them? I don't know, Russians yeah. Yeah. in London. Housing in particular for young people then in that period. So we're talking 73 to 1980. That was the period of time that I was sort of living out, sort of slightly outside normal society. But there was squatting, which is a hard thing to understand now. But most of Notting Hill, for instance, was squat. The big posh houses that George Osborne lives in now were commune squats with big posters outside and pictures of Che Guevara in the window and Janis Joplin and rock and roll music and dope parties and free food kitchens were in those Mm. really flash joints in Notting Hill. Notting Hill was totally different. That was the thing. As a young person, you could come to London, live in a perfect... I lived in a really nice muse house off Regent's Park left my bike in the garage and then he cycled to work you know i had somewhere to live that was so cheap mm-hmm. it, did, it did cost money you had to pay the power bills but nothing else and you know i could do it i could afford to live on a very low income in the middle of london which now yeah, unless you're in a box yeah. you know under the bridge you can't do you know but had you come to london you know to try and find the, the streets paved with gold 
No. What, what was what was the what was the move? Um, it was by? making shoes. So I was a, I became a it's so embarrassing going over this old rubbish. But I was a hippie leather worker. So after I lived in the commune, mm. I met a man who made leather bags, <laughs> and we went to festivals <laughs> in the summer and sold leather bags and and and. Uh, belts with Celtic runes emblazoned on them and studs and kind of embarrassing. And I got then I I think I must have been quite a snotty ethical little tosser because I went this is ridiculous this is bourgeois frippery mm. this isn't useful I want to make something useful yeah. and so I then was in London buying weird studs and and buckles for weird hippie belts and I saw this old bloke in a basement <laughs> just off Tottenham Court Road making shoes mm. I'd never. Never occurred to me. I'd never seen that anything like it. And I went down. He was Greek Cypriot guy, lovely man. And he and while I was there talking to him, uh, he was really generous with his time. And he was showing me the shoes and, how, and this was just like on a Tuesday morning, wasn't anything. I hadn't got an appointment. It was just a fluke thing. His boss, the guy who ran the shoe shop, came down. They were looking for an apprentice, and I went, oh. And he said, well, come on. And he was very posh English. Why didn't you come along and be an apprentice with us? <laughs> Oh, all right. <laughs> so that's what I did. And that shop is still there. Uh, James Taylor's, it's called, just off Marlebone High Street. Wow. And they're uh, bespoke shoemakers. So I learnt to make shoes with old, really old men, old Jewish guys for, who were in the camps. So wow. I, I was taught by a guy who had a number tattooed on his arm. Wow. He was in a concentration camp because he was a shoemaker. Often the shoemakers and tailors would survive because they would mend the clothes or make clothes for the guards or make their boots. This guy repaired jack boots for. Would, would he be making? You know, when you go to the museums and you see the, the rows and rows of shoes, would he have been responsible for making some of the inmates' shoes? Or? Possibly. I mean, he would. He was a. He was a shoemaker in 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 Prague. That's where yeah. he came from. So he was Czech, a Czech Jew, and then his buddy was a, a German communist who was also put in a camp who also had that, because I assumed he was Jewish as well. He wasn't. Wow. He was German. But he wasn't. He was all his family were killed. I mean, it's horrendous stories. Yeah. And that generation has kind of gone now because they were adults during the war, you know, in that. But their stories of that were amazing. But they taught me to make shoes. So they made incredibly beautiful. They were very sort of high-end posh shoes like the like you prince charles would get from john lobb so i also which is another shoemaking company so i also worked for them later on and most of the people who were making the shoes then were in their late 50s 60s were mm. about to retire so they were all those companies were desperate to get some young blood in to make otherwise they weren't going to have any they had the orders people wanted the shoes they had no one to make them you know so and then you let them down by going off to start writing well, then, yeah well then i you know i did that for I don't know how long, maybe five years, set up my own company with a friend that we made shoes for. We were out workers for them, but we also made shoes for our own clients. And Celtic runes. No, by then, <laughs> they were brogues for, okay. for bankers. Yeah, yeah. They were, yeah, we went from Celtic runes to bankers' <laughs> brogues. So really posh, because these shoes, even then, so we're talking like 1979, 80, uh, 250 quid for a pair of shoes. Yeah, then was like a thousand pounds now. You know, they were very expensive, made to measure. I mean, they were beautiful, and I was never that technically good at them. There were some parts of it I was good at, but uh, the guy that I worked with, my partner in the business we set up, was genius. You know, sort of world standard, brilliant finish that he would have. They would glow like they were made of, you know, a, a pair of black shoes looked like it was made of black glass. They glowed that much. They were so crisp. You know. But did you just have to have this exceptional attention span? Because oh, I was reading about Benedict Cumberbatch being into watchmaking. Uh, yeah. the other day and it, it you seem to need this really like detailed it, it was, focus I think, yeah I think it was good for me in the, that sense because I didn't have that I think mm. when I started and it just if you didn't develop that you couldn't do it 
so it became a thing where you could sit down for five hours cutting the edge of a sole to make it just fit the you know those sort of attentions to detail and sewing them and they're really hard it's really physically hard work it's it's not like watchmaking because that is very fine delicate yeah. work this is you know you're sometimes smashing something with a hammer you know putting pegs in to hold a heel on you know it's not all delicate work i mean at this point you could have killed your own animals skinned them made well, that's your own why, leather and then created your own exactly shoes. so i had to, that was why because i was using leather that was where the killing animals came from right. i thought i can't use leather i was a vegetarian and i was cutting up leather i went oh hang on there's something wrong here. <laughs> this doesn't work i was a vegetarian out of love because i was in love with the vegan and I couldn't ever quite go. I tried to be vegan. But then, in, in honouring the process of making a really decent pair of shoes, you at least turn the end product into something that's yeah, truly treasured. Yeah, you're not wasting. You're hopefully not wasting it. Yes, I mean, and it is a, a something I would love to to have. It would have been a, a, an area I might have gone down in another life. Was that you know, like now, for instance, you could have a shoe shop where you walk in. And you put your foot in, you put your stocking foot in a box, and it measures it, and it does a, it prints you a last 3D printing last, which would fit your individual foot so well. It, the, the difference between putting a pair of shoes on that you buy in a shop yeah. and a pair of shoes that are made for you is mind-boggling because mm. you don't believe you've got shoes on. You think that you've got nothing on your feet, and yet you've got a heel that makes a noise. They fit so if they're done right. And that skill is that is the most complex bit of shoemaking is making that last which is the, the last is the mould that you make the shoe on and it, we used wooden ones they cut, they're pl often plastic now but you, and that wooden shape which is basically the shape of the inside of your shoe the, to make that to measure to fit someone is incredible skill I mean yeah. it's just mind because I've done it I've got it wrong mm -hmm. <laughs> and you have really unhappy people <laughs> do you who, still sort of love it now? I would I mean it's a uh, there's a sort of dead side to me that I could go back to it mm. It would take me so long, and I would rip my hands to pieces. So my hands were, were sort of SAS dangerous. T I had incredibly strong hands and incredibly weak arms. <laughs> the rest of me, but my hands could, you know, crush the front of a tank because you're <laughs> gripping and you're using your hands all the time. So the muscles in your hands yeah. really well developed, but it kind of faded past my wrists. <laughs> but it was quite weird how strong your hands were. But that now would be brutal. You know, I'd find that really hard. I think. And then, so how, you then had to use these hands for writing. Well, yeah, so then, I always, that was the other thing. I think when you said, what did you want to be? I never knew, but I w knew I wanted to write. Okay. I just didn't know what I wanted to write or how, or how you do it. So I wrote a novel when I was probably 12 that was like a Sherlock Holmes thing. You know, it was yeah. a d detective story. And I loved doing it. And, and it wasn't, and when you're that age, I was probably 12 or 13, you know, you write an essay for school and it's probably 500 words. I wrote like, 70 pages wow. in a book of handwritten story and I love the, the kind of how much there was that was a part of the excitement <laughs> the fact that it was a rubbish story with no ending and no plot and it, it was irrelevant then but then but that was something I always wanted to do definitely wanted to write didn't know how you do it suppose it was that combination it's that weird combination of things so late 70s early 80s I went to a club in Baker Street and saw a really funny man stand up in front of people and make them laugh I'd never seen anything like it and also because he did a sort of hippie character and he's, his name's Nigel Planer he's still a friend of mine who was in The Young Ones so I don't know if you mm, ever saw the, the young ones, it's yeah. a sitcom called The Young Ones Google it because it's yeah. very funny but he played a hippie in it Neil Neil and he's like really depressed I've just cooked some lentils does anybody want any he's always cooking lentils and always getting beaten up by, everyone, by the punks who hated the hippie 
Uh, and so Nigel and I became friends. And then it was th- sort of through that and then a, a kind of charity events in workshops that I worked in, making when I was making shoes, where I pr- they said, can you present the things or something? And I, oh, I don't know, I'm not, I've never been on stage, never been in a school play, never wanted to be an actor, didn't want to do any of that, but went on and sort of people didn't boo and throw things. So, uh, so out of that, I met some people who were performers. It's, uh, this is over a period of years, not like in two weeks. And I wrote them a, a sketch that they did. I didn't even see them do it. And people laughed and they said, oh, no, it went down really. Can you do another one? I went, oh, I can write stuff like the, for the man who stands and because he wrote that. That's why I've learned, you know, he writes it down. <laughs> then he says it and mm. then people laugh. <laughs> and it's such a weird way of working that out. There was no... You know, now you would. There's a whole industry around that, and you might know that you go. Oh, you go. You go to the BBC and you give them scripts. And I hadn't got a clue. It was a mm. total mystery. So I wrote more stuff for those guys, and they said, "Can you do it as well?" There was one sketch about the RAF about my father, who was in. Uh, it was a pilot in the war, but it was a. It was a sort of spoof of that and being pissed and stoned and going out to get a kebab after the bombing raid. So they were trying to find the kebab shop, but they were in a Lancaster bomber, and that. I can't really describe the whole thing. And it was all about homophobia as well, because one of the characters was very homophobic, but the co-pilot was gay, hmm. and he was sick and tired of being oppressed. <laughs> it was just... People laughed. I'll just say that. So I performed that one night in a pub called The Crown and Castle in Dalston Junction in East London. I went on stage and so desperate to find a way of getting out of it. Didn't want to do it. Didn't want to be there. Felt sick. Thought, this is stupid waste of time. I should be working. This is fucking stupid. I hated myself. But thankfully or whatever that night for some reason it was really big crowd it was the room was packed they laughed and they laughed at things I said which completely threw me when I'd never experienced that before and I'd say the line that we'd rehearsed in Bernie's bedroom mm-hmm. <laughs> so it'd never been out in public and I'd go da, 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 da. <laughs> oh oh and I was like that all the way apparently my friends who were in the audience said you, you know you ruined the performance because every time it got a laugh you stood and looked at everybody and going is that, how, is that funny then <laughs> so really not a slick performance the other two guys very seasoned performers have been doing it for years so I was carried by them mm. and that I think if that night had been a f- bit of a w- damp squid or you know people go oh no it's good yeah bye yeah it would I'd never have done it again people went insane just screaming and clapping and standing and standing ovation at the end and I didn't know what the hell was going on but it was the lift you got from it the that experience I'd never had anything like it before in my life and that was a, a game change a turning point game changer thing yeah well, sometimes the signs just lay themselves out there for yeah. you and if, if you don't follow them why, why wouldn't you yeah. like so that was weird and then so within so I was still making shoes then and within six months I was a full time performer I suppose if you can call it that uh, with a little group that we formed, four people, so three performers and a musician. And so we worked that, the alternative comedy circuit, which was exploding at the time, which is where a lot of the people, uh, Dawn French. Yeah. 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 Dawn French, uh, Jennifer Not Saunders. Yeah. No, <laughs> but I'm just, <laughs> Dawn will be happy that you. you French and Saunders. French and Saunders. Yeah. So yeah. they, you know, we, we did shows with them, Ben Elton, uh, Rick Mail, Ed Edmondson, all the oh, young right. ones, people. Oh, wow, they, yeah. All that crowd were of our generation, and and that's uh, and loads. Of, I mean, all sorts of people. Jack D. I remember meeting Jack D. On uh, who does what does he do now? Um, uh, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. He does radio stuff that you wouldn't listen to on radio for. <laughs> for the oh, it's Jack D. on the radio. That's nice. I listen to that. 
but yeah, so a lot of those comedians that you are now on panel shows. Yeah. The old one, the bald old ones on panel shows. We that was when we started out with them. But they do form these nice circuits because I guess they're level below that. You've got the um, uh, the guys from Peep Show and stuff like that. But it's sort of it hands off and, and obviously the Stephen Fry and that. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, I, I remember it, it well, Rick Mail and everybody and, and yourself as well around that era because my parents would be watching these shows. Yes. I was a young kid watching what they wanted right. to watch yeah, in the yeah. evening. So um, yeah, because the first time we did the Edinburgh Festival was when Emma Thompson, Stephen Fry. Uh, Hugh Laurie won the Perrier Award, which we didn't even know there was an award. It was the first year it happened. We never won the Perrier Award. I got nominated for it, but I never won it. Because <laughs> that, that was your your lead in, weren't you? I read that you were doing a, was it a one-man show as a robot? Yes. In, in Edinburgh Fringe? Yeah, that was, it was kind of 10 years later, but yes. Oh, sorry. Okay, yeah, wow. no, because uh, we first went to Edinburgh, I can't remember, 1980, 81. So 88, so not 10 years, but, okay. but a bit later, 88, I wrote a play called Mammon, Robot Born of Woman, which was uh, inspired by Robocop. But instead of building a robot that is good at killing people, this is a robot that was good at making money because it was at the height <laughs> of the sort of uh, the financial the f explosion in the city and there were yuppies, that was the, yeah, the yeah. common term. So he was a robo-yuppie. I think you're 30 years ahead of your time. I think everybody's fixated with making robots to build money. At the yeah, moment. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah. Well, exactly, yeah. yeah. But, it, but, then the, but the story, because it was a, a good friend of mine that I worked with a lot, uh, a woman called Deborah John Wilson, who's an uh, American actress, a black woman. And so it was the idea that a black woman couldn't trade on the, the stock market because of racism and stupidity. And, and she's a woman and she's black. So she makes a white male robot to go in That's and trade for her. And she's really good at trading, so she's controlling yeah. him. But then she uploads... Um, lust mode. <laughs> so it was very similar. There's a lot of Crichton, pre Crichton stuff, lust mode. And then, so, which was a cheap gag, but it got a big laugh was that he would have involuntary copulatory movements that, <laughs> and he'd shag a desk right across the stage. And you'd perform this. I was performing that with, with vigor. <laughs> it was cheap and shallow. And that's how you got into Red Dwarf? Effectively, yes, because the producer of Red Dwarf at the time saw the show. And what was great was a guy I knew, a guy called uh, Paul Jackson, amazing producer, TV producer. And he wanted to come in and see it. And I said, oh, I'm really sorry. We, I, it's full, you know, it's sold out, which is a really good thing. I didn't realize at the time I wasn't doing it as a mm. cool thing. I went, fuck, how am I going to get Paul in? I don't. So eventually we put a, a seat on the side of the stage just behind the curtain at the edge. And that's where he saw it from because there wasn't, you couldn't get a seat. It, it was, we were in a small theater to put it in context. It's only about 150 people. So, Do you think the nature of, of the Fringe has changed a bit? I, mean, I went there in 2010. Uh, we, we did a little show off the university. And it, it didn't necessarily feel like it was going to be the place that many people were going to be discovered. Whereas I feel like maybe 20 years before, it just had a bit more of a, I don't know, raw yeah, feel to it's it. Hard to, it's really hard to know. Because, for instance, by the time I did that show, I already had a kind of... Uh, a track record in Edinburgh for successful gotcha. shows with other people. So, uh, you know, I'd been in the group that I start, we started right back in the late 70s. We'd done massive shows. In, uh, we'd done long runs in big theatres with right. you know, 2,000 people sold out every night. So there was that. So it I sounds had, almost like it happened by, by chance, but actually it was the it, it, yeah, I mean, that was a uh, And that was a combination of going there year after year. So it wasn't like overnight. But that said, the first year we went ever, we had a poster which a friend of ours had screen printed. So we didn't have 500 posters. We had one which we would put outside the venue and hope no one would steal. And then we'd take it down after the gig. And We had nothing, no money, no publicity. And our golden rule, there's four of us, is we would never perform if there was 
the same number of people in the audience or less. I, if there was four people or less, we wouldn't do the show. We'd yeah. just give them the money back and say goodnight. And the first night we were on at the Edinburgh Festival, there were four people in the audience. We looked through the little curtain and went, no, oh, no. All these chairs we'd put out, no one. Four people, and then a, and one more guy came in and go. sat behind them. We went, oh, we, that's five. We've got to. We did the show, and it was agony. And they laughed. They were very sweet. But when you've only got five people, yeah. you know, even if they think it's really fun, they go, huh? because they're embarrassed yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so we got away with it the next night 50 people the third night sold out couldn't people couldn't get a ticket and that was i don't think that would happen now all right that was uh, to put that show in context it was a show we'd been doing a long time so it wasn't like a tryout first night student thing where you try it and will it work we knew it worked we'd yeah. done it in front of hundreds of audiences before so we had that advantage you know of no of being very confident with the material and the structure of it but for it to go that crazy, that quickly, I don't know if that can happen. Because there was no, we hadn't had a review. We hadn't had, it's word of mouth, pure word of mouth, which is a, an extraordinary thing to witness on that kind of little micro level. That there was then cues for returns to, so to cool. try and get in and see it, which is extraordinary. So, and we still lost money. Because <laughs> <laughs> the rent, we had to rent a flat and we had to rent the apartment. And then I think we might have paid for another three or four posters went crazy with money. So the the producer of Red Dwarf was not put out by being put sort of to the shuffle for the side and the curtain. He came straight up to you afterwards. and Well, he talked about, you know, do you, he. I think at the, the original conversation he said, do you, we are, you know, come and meet the writers of Red Dwarf, which I'd heard of and I'd seen one episode, but I hadn't really watched it. And I knew Norman Lovett, who is who plays a character Holly. He plays a computer, mm-hmm. and uh, and he's even older than me. He's actually older than me. Uh, and so I knew Norman. So he's the only one. I, and I'd seen a bit of it, and I saw Norman doing it. I went, oh, and I've kind of said no. I'm a bit busy because that show was commissioned by Channel Four to be a Channel Four series. I had my own work. I couldn't be doing other people's. Of course, the commission never came off. It was mm. a total disaster. And I just always wanted to go back to myself at that time now and just slap myself around the face and go, shut up and say yes. <laughs> Do not blow this. Because I had, you, had, you couldn't imagine how unlikely it was in 1988 to be said, Do you want to do this sitcom and still be doing it in 2020. You know, I've only yeah. just finished filming a new, yeah, a new lot of Red Dwarf. And Did you expect insane. this no. most recent film to come through, though? Oh, well, we kind of knew it was brewing, yeah. But uh, so... You know, in the last few years, we've kind of been aware that it, there's more coming. Sure, but what was the hiatus between season twelve and? Oh, this? oh, it was uh, nine years. I yeah, think. yeah, a long time. So, so it was that, for a long time. It was the show I used to do. Yeah, and yeah. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't really talk about it. It was that thing I used to do. But then it came back, and it, yeah. people liked it, and it was like it's so iconic. It, it's so weird. When's that coming out? Easter, I think. Okay. We're going to see it. We, we haven't seen it yet. It's always a surprise when you see it. Well, it looks very different when they finish with all the special I effects. I imagine you all look almost identical because they'll have you covered in prosthetics again. So you, I, you could be... I look... You might always tell us. Well, no, I do look I, I do look very recognisably Crichton, but I think he looks a little bit older, a lot more portly, <laughs> and a little bit slower in his movements. <laughs> And he generally needs three points of contact in, in any part of any spaceship as he falls over. <laughs> so I had a few quite disastrous falls because I didn't notice bits of set. Mm. So I'd be doing running along the corridor and you just hear, because <clears throat> when you go down in that costume, you go down yeah. hard. <laughs> I just didn't see things. So yeah, but, I, I think it remains a good formula. I was watching some clips of Red Dwarf the other day and it was one where Craig Charles' character is going to need to lie. 
or getting crying yes. and start telling yeah. telling lies and those kinds of things are just funny because you're off you're offsetting it onto a character where you can project yeah bigotry anything because it's a robot yeah. which gives you a lot of freedom to have and the fact that you know he's a, he's a character that admires the ability to lie cheat steal <laughs> he thinks he's brilliant he which, can't do it you know it reminds me actually that future armor almost copied that with with bender yes it, yes. it was a very well, similar because i wasn't aware of that but people said oh look at this and i'll go oh my god that's almost word for word like a Crichton scene yeah which is you know that stuff happens doesn't it i don't even know if they really was was Crichton similar to the character you'd cooked up at Edinburgh Fringe, or did you no, completely no, know? No, no. So the uh, uh, the only thing that was, the, which I'd forgotten about, but there was a bit, there was one because you couldn't record stuff. So a friend of ours who was who taught at film school, basically how to a camera operator, and she came to Edinburgh with a a video camera, which mm. is now, you know, when we heard that one, oh my god. A video cam, you know, it was like the size of. of the room. Well, no, it was quite small, and it, it but it used a terrible format, so it used a little video cassette. Yeah, I remember that. That, that you then clip inside a VHS tape, and then you could play it on a VHS right. tape. It was a shite, but the audio <laughs> was pretty bad. But you could just about hear it. And I've forgotten that the inner voice of Mammon. So that the things that said engage lie mode that was in that kind of voice, and I don't know why or where that came from. Slightly different, but it was a sort of bland american yeah uh you know very much inspired by 2001 you know mm, yeah dave mm -hmm. <laughs> are you feeling okay dave you know it's that kind of that was what i was trying to find it was meant to be canadian i cannot <laughs> tell you i cannot tell you how embarrassing it is to be at a science fiction convention in vancouver with a lot of canadians telling you that's no. not canadian eh <laughs> but he does kind of remind me of a canadian now i'd had a, a fling with a canadian the uh, the year uh, uh, yeah, just before I did started Red Dwarf, so that was That's so funny. Grouse Mountain, just outside Vancouver. Mm -hmm. It was a very nice afternoon we spent up there. We don't need to go into details. Because <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't, I kept trying to say it like she did, because it's Grouse Mountain. Yeah. But she'd call it Grouse Mountain. It was kind of Gross Mountain. Yeah. And I went, all right, love. I'm having to be gross on Gross Mountain. <laughs> but she'd say hoose and oot. Yeah. So it's a very Scottish, it's kind of a Scottish influence. A lot of Scottish people went to... Well, if, you've been, of, if you've yeah. been to, um, is it Nova Scotia? Uh, no. Uh, no, I've, that's the only part, the British Columbia is the only bit I've been to. I've never, because I'd love to go on the East Coast. Yeah, uh, if you go really far east, it's, it's just like, they sound really Irish. Right. And it's, it's, it's an absolute bridging point between Ireland and, yeah. and the more east and, and whatever yeah. not, but it's, it's a complete muddle. We mustn't forget to talk Sorry. about Fully Charged. Oh, yeah. No, so, um, so, how, so to advance the story along a bit, so Red Dwarf, yeah. And then Scrap Beat Challenge. Scrap Beat Challenge. And then how do we yeah. get into YouTube? Because YouTube, it's, it's Fully Charged is 10 years old, I yes. think, this year. YouTube is only 15 years yeah. old. Yeah, and I did a series on YouTube before yeah. that. So, I'll, I'll do it as quickly as I can, because <laughs> I know I'll waffle on. So in about 2000, in 2000, I went to a conference in Los Angeles about internet broadcasting. I think they called it internet narrow casting, just right. to be clever, and yeah. podcasting. And it was a conference about <clears throat> podcasting and video on the internet, which at the time was just close to impossible. I mean, it was just just barely possible you could have a tiny little shrunk down, crushed video feed that you could watch on your dial-up modem. You know, it was really just mm. not really happening. But you could tell, I really got a sense at that conference that it could happen. Yeah. Uh, and I saw a wonderful display of um, Final Cut Pro, it must have been around the time 
uh, Apple launch Final Cut Pro, where there's the really confident geek behind the table with all the stuff, and there's a big screen. And he goes, so if you want to drop something in your timeline, you just do the And the whole thing froze, and there was a spinning ball of doom, and nothing, and they had to unplug, just like we unplug yeah. everything. You know, so pushing that, that technology was being pushed to the absolute limit that you could do that stuff, but you could sense. Because at that stage, I had edited offline edited sitcoms that I'd shot for Channel 4 um, in the mid-80s we did one uh, and, and that was VHS tapes mm. so you'd be transferring footage from one VHS tape machine to another it was so crude and so time consuming but it, there wasn't anything else so I thought it was really cool cutting edge stuff and you could see oh once this is all on a computer and you can just move the file over and you can do that with it that you know it started, but that was 2000 so it took a long time yeah but i became sort of fascinated with the possibilities so it was partly that it was partly the camera crew and the camera engineers on scrappy because scrappy was such a big uh, production had so many cameras they had like a camera engineers mm. to maintain everything to do to make sure all the sound communication worked that they were getting the pictures sent back to the mixing desk so that the person there can say get a shot of the gearbox exploding or whatever it was there was quite a lot of more technology than you'd have if you were shooting a documentary or a sitcom so yeah. those guys were obsessed with kit mm. and, they, and we used little things that they used to call suicide cameras so that like a lipstick that size but with a wire at the back and it went into a box and you could strap that to a machine to film the driver when you were, it was going over the sand dunes or in the water or whatever and, they, and if it got bust up they weren't that expensive so they didn't mind so I bought two of those cameras at the end of Scrap Heap for like nothing for 50 quid yeah. uh, from them and they were rubbish <laughs> <laughs> and I found little mounts that I went to a camera mount shop and you had these little suckers that you put on a windscreen because I thought I was just shooting a car because yeah. then you've got stuff going on outside and you can talk while you're driving mm. so I did this series called Carpool where I gave people lifts that was all it was and you know people watched it and that was in, initially on iTunes it wasn't even on YouTube because they were like 20 minutes long mm. and you couldn't put anything more than I think four or five minutes on YouTube right. at that time. And then someone from, it's that weird thing how that happened, someone from YouTube who was a Red Dwarf fan got in touch with me. It was that way around and said, come in, let's talk. Oh, I went, oh my awesome. God. You know, so I went in and they went, he went, I said, I, I'd love to put it on YouTube, but I can only put on five minutes. He went, now you, now you, can, you can put however long you want. <laughs> he did something on my account, which meant I could put four hours on, you know, if I wanted to. Yeah, so then like that, new people can upload garbage. Yeah. Mm. Well, I guess, I wonder why they did. I think it was the Service storage space, of it. Yeah. And, the, you know, that stuff was still more expensive then, wasn't it, to put, have five million well, hard drives. Presumably they still needed people to, to comb through and edit and approve and censor wonder, even yeah. back then. So yeah. it was just... Oh, economics I, didn't God work. knows. Yeah, that was, that was pre. Oh no, that must have been after Google bought YouTube. That must have happened because I went to the Google offices in London to see that guy. Anyway, so then I'd launched Carpool and it worked really well. And then it was that uh, that interesting journey where it then got commissioned as a regular TV show mm -hmm. on Dave. Yeah, and this is, this is like a precursor to James Corden's carpool. I mean, is that, they it's your... very hard to say that James <laughs> okay, would have okay. copied something. <laughs> something about I've seen it in America as well. It's obviously it inspired, inspired I think, is well, the there, word. There's also, um, he was really nice about it, uh, Jerry Seinfeld uh -huh. doing Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, which is essentially yeah, what I was doing, but because it was mainly comedians that I got in the car. But... It's you know other people had put cameras in cars before I did. Yeah. Yeah. You know you can't really. I, I've always said it's not that. But he sent a little apology. Sorry, dudes, not heard of carpool. 
in a tweet to me. So I thought, well, that's fair enough. James Corden not hasn't done that. Yeah, <laughs> I actually I, saw I him at a, a Jaguar event in Los Angeles, and he was being ushered out. I was just standing on my own with a canopy, and he was being ushered out by his people, and he went, ha, ha, ha. he did a sort of look. Didn't say anything, and I went. Ah. I've never met him before, you know, sure. someone I know. But I think there was some acknowledgement. Yeah. I, I like to think it was a guilt spasm, yeah. but I don't think it, I don't think he does guilt. <laughs> he just can see people. Potentially, he, he might have done. But also, have you seen the footage of the of how they film that? He's yeah, not, he's not driving. It's on a trailer. The car's on a really weird looking trailer. I always so suspected with the value of the celebrities in the yeah. car that driving it might be. Yeah. Foolish. I think it's, but everyone went, who, you know, it's disgrace. He doesn't even drive. And I went, fair enough, mate. You know, yeah, if you, I, mean, if if you, I was driving Beyonce, I mean, I had yes. Stephen Fry and in. Her face it. hits the dashboard. Yeah. Oh. Well, no, that, that was what, no. So I've got to go back very briefly to yeah. why this happened. So I had a, an argument with my car insurance in their office. I said, why is my, I know other people who are my age. I've, had not a, I've got no claims, blah, blah, blah. It's a not expensive car. Why am I paying so much? It's because you're an actor. What, are actors bad drivers? No, actually, actors have got a very good re reputation as drivers, but you might give someone famous a lift. I said, I never give anyone famous. Oh. Mm. And I went, oh, Eddie Izzard. I gave him one. And yeah. Ruby Wax, who... Yeah. He, he doesn't know who you are, Ruby, in case you ever hear this. I will know after You will know now. It's very funny. She's lovely. Um, and I can't remember who else. But that was like three people who you could, at the time, you could have said were famous. And that is the that reason is if I don't even have a bad accident but they bash their head on the thing and they're in the middle of doing a series and they've got a bruise or a cut yeah. the, the production company can sue me and their, my insurance yeah, if, if Brian Blessed loses his beard yeah. or something yeah so so then I thought well I'm paying for it I may as well have some famous people in the car so then I, I thought that was a, a, a motivating so and they, they pulled you into it. Dave and then it, it yeah and I did it and it was fine but they were very prescriptive of who I could have and the subject the matter you had to talk and, about. And it was all comedians, which is fine. Mm. No, not, not what we were talking about, but it was all comedians that are on Dave regularly. Which, and they were all great. It wasn't, it wasn't like the actual shows. I just went, because I had brain surgeons, I had neuroscientists, mm. engineers, as well as celebs. I always wanted to get a bit of nuclear scientist, you know, all sorts of interest. Brian Cox, before he was a big telly star. Yeah. He, you know, it was fascinating to hear the density of liquid something or other yeah. on the planet's surface of fuck. <laughs> Most of that one, I'm just like, ah. There's a wonderful magician. Oh, I've got to remember his name. I know I've started. Paul Daniels, mm -hmm. who passed away a couple of years ago. Really funny. Do you, have you heard of yeah, him? Yeah, he, he was an assistant and they yeah. saw in half. Debbie. Yeah, Debbie, yeah. who's lovely. And she made me a cup of tea in the kitchen. He, she was lovely. But he did, I, that's one time I nearly crashed because it was such a shock. He did, and he was sort of retired by that time. And he did a card trick as I was driving in there. I had to pick a card like this, pick a card, any card, look at the card, all right, put it in your, put, you know, put it back in, you know, don't worry about it. And so I'm like that, going in, and then he's, I saw on camera, he does all this shuffling stuff, and then he goes, um, is this the, is this the card? And he lifts it out of his pocket, and it wasn't. I think I'd chosen the eight of clubs, say, and he lifted it up, and he's like two of clubs. Oh, poor old, he's poor old guy. He's, you know, he was retired. I felt quite sad for him can't do the magic anymore and then he pulled it up again and the card kept getting longer and longer until there were eight clubs on it awesome. <laughs> and how the fuck he did it <laughs> but it was so good when it was in it was perfect moment in a car when you're driving and i kept going because ah! <laughs> 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 it kept getting longer and longer and longer you know, like just, your insurance it was basically a, a playing card that was like a foot long yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was yeah no he was great yeah 
but that yeah so that kind of really it kind of made me depressed it wasn't because the channel were bad or anything. it was just why well, I didn't I, that's like property it became like a job mm. and that that's was definitely a turning point I went I don't want to do that what I love doing is this completely anarchic thing and I had the advantage and it's you know unfair for other people trying to do the same thing where I'm earning my living somewhere else mm. so carpool only ever cost me money yeah. <laughs> I never made I suppose at the end of the doing the Dave series I made a bit but it was still you know peanuts through all that stuff I'd come into contact with engineers through scrap scrappy who were doing electric drivetrains who were doing battery management systems who were explaining how lithium-ion batteries that could be recharged could be used in vehicles and blah, blah, blah. all that stuff was in the background I was mm. interested in that and so 2010 was when I thought I'll try this I'll just do a pilot and see if anybody watches it and put it on and yeah. kind of a few people it wasn't big you know big numbers or anything but it kind of the car companies noticed that was interesting because they are mm. they know they've got to completely transform the whole way they operate and they don't know how to do mm. it and they still don't know how to do it 10 years later mm. but they're desperate for any help so you know they were it was almost like they kind of went oh can you do something about this Mitsubishi whatever you know it was really interesting so it grew partly by the access I was given into those companies so early Hondas and so, um, so the, the early genesis of, of the, the production was that to convert cars into electric no no it was manufacturers that were making electric right. cars so I knew that Nissan were bringing out the Nissan Leaf probably yeah. two years before it was launched so in probably 2010 20, 2009 mm. so I was driving mule cars which is where they make the drivetrain gotcha. so they put a different body on it and you know you drive that and that, literally I drove that around a car park you know, not on the road. It wasn't road legal. And then uh, there was the Tesla people. Because they, they took a Lotus, tiny. didn't they, or something? Yeah, that was a, yeah. a converted Lotus, the Roadster. So that was the first car that I filmed in for fully charged. But that was so that was commercially available by then, and that would do around two hundred miles on a charge, which was amazing at the time. Everyone yeah. went an electric car that does two hundred <clears throat> miles was just incredible. But there's nowhere to charge it. That's the thing, other than your house and a three-pin plug, which took would take two days to charge that car you know mm. that was was it called fully charged from the start it was called gearless Gearless, okay yeah for about an episode because mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, because i thought electric cars don't have gears at which point i found all these electric cars that had gears because right. <laughs> <laughs> i thought that instead of top gear or no i was going to be no gears yeah and then gearless and i'm glad it, i don't know how i don't know where fully charged came from it just sort of appeared out of and like, so you started because you wanted to have autonomy over the production. Did you think back then, and you and with this answer you can explain what exactly where fully charged is right. now to people who don't know. Did you think back then that it would become? Was it just a passion project? Did you think it would become this commercial opportunity? Because it's a it's a business now. Yeah, you and, oh, I definitely definitely didn't think it would be a business opportunity. I thought, I, I, in fact, I so many times I went I, I, well I did stop doing it because I couldn't afford it right. didn't have time I had other jobs to do, I was doing other things so that if you look at the kind of release dates of, from the first episode they're very sporadic to start with they're not every week or anything like that so it was around about 20 I suppose when would have been 16 15 16 since 2016 so for the last four years it's been either one or two episodes a week pretty consistently throughout throughout the year which is a big lot of stuff yeah. that's a lot of production to make to maintain that and that required money so the the two main sources of income which you know which we we get now still is adsense from mm -hmm. the adverts on youtube which 
2016 would have been literally 112 pounds a month right. or 96 pounds you know very yeah. low because of not that many views mm. so very small amounts of money now it's it's a it's enough to pay the rent on the office and for one editor but it's not, right. nowhere near enough to pay for the whole thing so right. you've got to be in the sort of um Marcus Brownlee territory where you've got yeah. 23 million subscribers and 14 million views a <laughs> yeah. day. You're not doing too badly. We're doing all right. We're doing a, between two and three million views a month. That's wow. our average, wow. which is good. Yeah. With about 600,000 subscribers? Just over 600,000 subscribers, yeah. yeah. So, and that, but it's been really prop. You can really call that organic growth. It hasn't been <laughs> spectacular explosions. It's yeah. been this constant steady. So we add about between three and 5,000 subscribers a week. New okay. subscribers a week, great. which is amazing. Because yeah, uh, if you think about it, it, some some TV channels would be envious of having oh, yeah. that viewership, right? Yeah. And that, that's what's so interesting about YouTube is is you come prepackaged with six hundred thousand yeah. people hooked on your content. Yeah, which is it is no that side of it is extraordinary. And the, I think the thing that I'm really only been really aware of the last sort of eighteen months is where people live. So it's about twenty three, twenty four percent of our audience are in the UK, mm. which means the vast majority are outside the UK. The biggest single block is the United States. Amazing. But Netherlands is huge. Germany mm. is huge. Australia, New Zealand. I mean, uh, uh, Netherlands and uh, Germany, I think it's fascinating because it's an English language show and we don't put subtitles on. Although some, I think a, ger a lovely German man did on one or That's two, cool. but it's a lot of work. Yeah. You know, and we don't make any effort to do that. But, uh, but of course, Dutch people speak better English than we do. So yeah. it's so true. Yeah. And Germans as well. So yeah, there, there's that side of it, which is fascinating. And we've just experienced that with a live show in, in Texas, in Austin, Texas, uh, a couple of weeks ago, which was a big success. So anyway, there's that side. The, the other one was, and this is again, through a kind of personal contact, there was someone I knew from working on Scrap Heap in America. I met a lot of people there in both sort of uh, startup internet TV and engineering. <laughs> it's a weird combination. So people who are working at, uh, the early people who worked at Tesla who developed electric motorbikes in San Francisco and you know, electric pedal bikes. So the pedal assist bike, mountain biking, was this huge explosion yeah. in, in mm. California. Um, so I was kind of aware of all that. And then other people who were in sort of startup territory who uh, I went to a party, I think it was 2005, uh, when we were shooting Scrap Heap in America. And I went with young, even then, because uh, 2005 was quite a while ago, I still felt 30 years too old to be at the party. They were all about your age or younger. And that was the launch of Twitter. But I didn't know that wow. till about two or a launch party for Twitter. I didn't know that till at least two years later. Cause I, some, so someone said, what's your Twitter handle? And I cannot tell you how naff and rubbish that sounded then because it just sounded, what the hell are these people with their fucking laptops? <laughs> Twitter, I mean, Twitter, <laughs> fuck off. No, just, it sounded shit. And yeah. there was these little messages going, hey dudes, how y'all hanging? <laughs> Like going up on a big screen, like who fucking cares? Yeah. You know, it just sounded so shit. <laughs> but somebody, one of the people I was with, created a Twitter account for me, mm -hmm. and my comedy joke name on the production was Bobby Lou because they couldn't say Llewellyn, so it was Robert and Llewellyn. Mm -hmm. They shortened it to Bobby Lou because my co-presenter was Bobby Sue. I don't want to be, I'm not going to give her a full name because I don't want to be rude in case by chance someone who knows her hears this. Uh, Bobby Sue was not the sharpest knife in the drawer and never understood why I was called Bobby Lou. Because you're Bobby Sue and I'm Bobby Lou. Just don't worry about it. 
<laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> so that's so I became Bobby Lou, on, and it was honestly, it was probably two years later. I think I was listening to the Today program on Radio Four when someone said, "No, proudly he said on." Twitter <laughs> that he did. I went. Is that that thing? Oh my god! Oh my god! Wait a minute. Haven't I got an account on there? Couldn't find it. Mm-hmm. Found some young. How do I find my account? I had five and a half thousand followers, and I'd written hello. <laughs> the cult leader speaks. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't know what it was because I think it said in the bio "Scrap Heap" and "Red Dwarf" or something like that. Yeah. So, it, so then I started using it, and then uh, that was uh, yeah, very odd. So that whole thing was all all kind of tied in with that so somehow through the similar group of people i heard about this thing called patreon mm. and i knew someone i knew knew pomplamoose which was i'm trying to remember who it was it's embarrassing but pomplamoose a, a lovely band a man a man a husband and wife team she sings he he plays piano and guitar and they did a nice song it was on youtube it got like six million views mm. and people loved it and it got amazing comments and amazing amount of likes and they got nothing. Mm. <laughs> and if that had been a record, they would be millionaires, you know, in 10 years earlier. Yeah. So he then set up, uh, what is, I'm trying to remember his name, is it Jack Conti? I think that's his name, who set up... Um, it might be, that sounds familiar, for Patreon. Patreon, yeah. yeah. So he set up Patreon so that you could give $2 to the people you like, whose video you liked. And and I went, well, that's not going to work for us because we we don't do music, it's not that. And then, like a year later, I went, oh, all right, I'll try it. Mm. And that has been an amazing success story for us. So we're, we're there's about three and a half thousand people donate between two and ten dollars a month Great. towards keeping fully charged going. And you think that they don't get much for it. They get the show. But, you know, they, they don't need to do it. It's completely yeah. voluntary. I'm just staggered that it, I but was it spreads really... a message. I mean, if you were out there fracking and yeah. digging holes in the ground, it would be a harder sell. But I yeah. think spreading the message of electric vehicles... <laughs> I quite like to set up a, a, a Patreon account for, a, for individual frackers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it'd be horrifying if you suddenly wrote, oh my God, we've got £11 million a month. <laughs> I guess we better start drilling. Because <laughs> we're fracking only in hippie households. Yeah. Right, I, think, I think that's it. It's, there, there is the tangible goods of you. You yeah. feel part of the creation and... Maybe they can't bring that conversation to light themselves. Yes. How, how do you keep the content fresh on, on such an aggressive schedule to release? It's knackering. But, I mean, it's not just me. So, I mean, it's having other presenters, and that is really the... But it's all in the context of, of something to do with, with electric power or electric or, vehicles. Or, or, or is it- I mean, it's renewable, clean tech and renewable yeah. stuff. So, I mean, um, uh, Helen Chesky will very soon go to a, a big battery recycling centre in Germany mm. where the first generation of electric car batteries are being crushed up and the materials are being separated and they show it to you in jars and they recycle about 95% of the material in batteries to somebody, make new batteries. Somebody saying that we, we call it lithium iron, actually was Elon Musk saying in an interview and he's like, but the lithium's tiny, it's tiny. It's a tiny, tiny amount. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yet, the, the name that's called lithium yeah. iron is always... And, the, and all the, the scare stories are we're going to run out of lithium. lithium. Well, yeah. we're going to run out of steel yeah, yeah. way before that. Rubber, plastic, you know, all the other things that you put the cars are made of. And presumably very timely because if you're... Um, and you can use it again. I mean, that's the yes. thing. You can extract lithium and it is exactly... It has not... Ch- lithium doesn't go into something else. It can only be lithium. It's a, 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 a on the periodic element. table. An element. element Sorry, yeah. it's an element. So you can't you can't make lithium into something else. Because it'd be interesting, you guys going over and, and tracking the building of the gigafactory is going to be built in Germany, isn't it? The next yeah. number three. Um, which... I think I think my feeling on all these things is that it's they're so fascinating from the outside, but the, the understanding behind the scenes is misconstrued at best. Yeah, 
and to really know what goes on in the gigafactory or how badly used or abused these battery cells yeah. are it, it's or, and what the materials that they're made from because I mean that's the thing they're not you know the two elements that have been in the news cobalt and lithium mm. there's enough lithium and this is from minerals companies in the city of London whose whose entire existence relies on them knowing the actual facts about how much mineral deposits there are so not just they, they do everything mm -hmm. so they know how much copper there is how much iron ore you know all those things aluminium all that stuff and they do know how much lithium there is and they say there's enough lithium for about 200 billion electric cars there's no way we can make 200 billion electric cars there's no not enough other material yeah. for it but lithium is such a tiny proportion of the mass of that vehicle it's less than one percent if you look at the whole vehicle yeah that it's not that isn't the issue <laughs> there might be issues with extracting lithium and you know how you do it and how you do it responsibly and ethically but it's in seawater so one percent of seawater is lithium well they're talking about doing some, so some silicon uh, based or, or seawater based uh, battery cells soon yeah. and because the, the, pro the problem with the current ones is they form the sort of stalactites or the crystals that that yeah drive across from one anode to the cathode or stuff like that and then they can short the battery in it yeah. I mean, it's, it's certainly a danger, and it's far more a danger in Laptops. small electronics. Yeah. You know, I mean that, and why? And what, you know, cobalt is the kind of the most ethically challenging of the elements in a battery, which is, uh, and the vast majority of cobalt on the planet's surface is in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Mm. Not very democratic, not a very mm. nice place to be born in and be a kid that works in a mine. You know, absolutely out of order. But a, a laptop and a phone battery is between 10 and 40% cobalt to make it safe. A car battery is less than 1%. So, I mean, the thing is, a car battery is bigger, so it does use cobalt, but the first generation of zero cobalt batteries are just about hit, hitting the market now. And I think that's the thing you can't, you know, the battery discussion, it's fascinating that that's become the central discussion around electric vehicles. So people now, I don't hear, oh, I couldn't have one because I'd have range anxiety because, you know, they've read in a magazine or on the Daily Mail or on a website, you'll have range anxiety. Everyone who drives an electric car has range anxiety the first time they drive it because they've been told they'll have it. I did. Yeah. I was terrified it was going to run out. And then second time I went, oh, yeah. third time, I, don't, I never think about it. I've never had range anxiety. And your first electric car was? A Mitsubishi iMeve. Okay. Fabulous car. <laughs> I just saw one, actually, on the street where I was on the no bus. Way. Yeah, there's still one on the road. There is one at Notting Hill. There's, they're very, they were Japanese mm -hmm. city cars. Really good for London. Really narrow. They're very narrow. When you're in it, you're sort of driving like that. Yeah, what are those How many seats they have? Four-seater, okay. four doors, little hatchback, funny little thing. Mm. Not fast or anything. That's but like terrifying. Was it, the, is it something go or like... Oh, the G-Wiz. The G-Wiz, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, the iMove was an actual car that yeah, had a safety were... rating. The G-Wiz was a an egg box. Yeah. It was made out of the same material they make the egg boxes, and you're not quite as thick, yeah. and four yeah. wheels that look like they'd come off. Because I drove, we filmed one, and I drove one on a rough kind of rubble car park in East London because it had groovy graffiti on the wall, mm -hmm. and we were trying to get a hipster groovy mm -hmm. shot. And there was a lump of rock in that road that a kid would ride a tricycle over. And I went up to it in the Jeep, <laughs> and I went, oh, 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 it couldn't, oh, I couldn't get over it. <laughs> so, no, they were, it was almost like the G Wiz was designed by Jeremy Clarkson and Exxon to mm -hmm. make sure no one ever wanted to go in electric vehicles, because uh, yeah. they were diabolically bad. But I think someone has, and certainly there's plans to make one a dragster so that they'll put a phenomenally powerful motor in it and big fat tires. And, you know, if you make dra dragsters are really good at electric cars because you only need a range of about a mile mm -hmm. and then you can do the race. Yeah. <laughs> 
But uh, it was a proper electric car, the first one you had. Yeah, it was a proper. I mean, it would do 70 or 80 miles on a charge, and it, you had to charge it off a three-pin plug, you know, which I had in the garage. And uh, my son was in his mid-teens when I had it, and it, it was always, we live in a very rural area with actual farming. It's quite weird in the Cotswolds. There's not a lot of farming in the Cotswolds, but there is near us. And it's, so it's very muddy, especially in the winter. So the car was just brown with mm. mud. And then I parked it next to the wall in the garage to plug it in and I you know then I get in it so I saw that side of the car I get in it I drive it to the shops drive back get out park it in the same place you know plug it back in and then one day I was reversing out and my wife was waiting outside so she could get in the passenger side because it was near too near the wall and she said oh come look at this come and I thought I'd scratch the car I ran out and looked and on the side of the car my son had written totally gay car <laughs> in really good Good lettering, not rubbish, quite ornate, totally. And I'd been driving like that for probably a month, but we were both so thrilled because he spelt totally right. And at last, we're getting there. And he, he, he just said, now he's now in his late 20s, and he went, yeah, I was a legend. Um, you're often described as the anti-Clarkson. <laughs> how, how do you, how do you feel about that? And, and do you ever think that Fully Charged would move on to uh, primetime TV? Or is it you want to retain that autonomy? I th- yeah, I don't. I, I mean, I think I don't want to do. I mean, I think that's the advantage I have in some ways over a young person who who's done YouTube and wants a career in television, which I totally understand, and it's not a criticism. I really don't need to do that. I've done yeah. that. I've mm. done that for bloody decades. Yeah. So I'm not. And, and also, uh, the thing that excites me about YouTube is its international flavour. That yeah. the, most of the people who watch it are overseas. You know. Yeah. That's a, so and it really broadens you because when I talk about something like battery solar panels on your roof, if you talk to an English audience, you go, I know it's cloudy here, but they still work. I'm not talking to an English audience. I'm talking yeah. to people who are in Australia that have got yeah. way more solar panels on their roof than I'll ever have, mm. and export electricity and make money you know there's a whole yeah. huge difference in the, in the market so it gives you a very global perspective mm-hmm. which I think is hopeful when you're in a, a city or a country or a town with a very rhetoric like Australia at the moment their government is stone age coal age yeah, yeah. America has got a slightly um, questionable president but what's going on in the cities in America is amazing I mean they're doing incredible Austin is, is aiming to be 100% renewably powered by 2023 it's amazing. it's amazing. And they're close to it already because yeah. they've got so much wind and they're putting in solar and all their buses are electric and the taxis are electric and everyone's on scooters. There's a lot of man buns and tats on <laughs> scooters. <laughs> There's a lot of scooters. There's every brand of scooter. We use some because I've got a, a Lime account for yep. Lime yeah. scooters. So I'm always amazed when those things work in other countries. That's an old person's thing. <laughs> when I first used Uber, oh my God, my Uber works here. You know, yeah. like I've used it in London. I've never yeah. used it in San Francisco or Sydney. It works. It works there. Yeah. Servers are clever. I mean, and, and those places almost lend themselves better. Like sometimes I don't, I don't get the sharing schemes in London because it seems like nobody treats anything very, very well. I just see bikes yeah. upended, and, and that's my yeah. my worry about the electric scooter scene as well. It's like. You know, they, I think they, 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 they wear out. Yeah, they, I think it's a phase. I do think we'll you'll live to see. I might not, but you'll live to see well, the end of it. I mean, I think it's it's a shame because it's it's a good idea, but the the infrastructure. You know, you you kind of want to go the other way around. You want to go right. We're going to build a city. How's it going to work? Well, we'll people will travel around on scooters. Mm. They'll walk. They'll ride bicycles or they'll use public transport. Okay, so let's build it for that. Yeah. So like this is a road. This is where the bus goes. That's a bit wider. Yeah. And there's a bike road, and there's a scooter thing, and there's a walkway. 
and then this is a narrow one, so that's just scooters and people walking. You know, you would build the city totally differently. What yeah. we've got is cities, particularly in this country, that were built for fucking horses yeah. Yeah. and ca- carts and narrow, windy lanes, and then you put a little narrow pavement, and you've got a scooter with potholes and cobbles. That's you know, it with a lot yeah, of these really things. difficult. You, you feel that the American infrastructure with the grid systems lends itself well to all these autonomous vehicles and everything like that, and... Um, yeah. And the use cases seem really obvious. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, but it's so great you get to, as you say, discuss these ideas. Yes, scale, I mean, that's, not just at a exactly provincial. That, that is the exciting thing about it. So, in that that sense, I wouldn't want to do anything. Uh, you know, on a. I'm not interested in trying to pursue a broadcasting. The one area we have uh, made some attempts at is to do something like on Netflix or on Amazon okay. TV mm. or on Apple TV to go to a different audience yeah. and like you know that would be I think that's worth pursuing and also it's in again it's international because the reason I asked is because we were discussing before before we started recording about how this has gone from being a passion project to a a business and you yeah. have a team and you have a uh, I think yeah, you're the CEO, you CEO, but you have the, the, it's called the I'm called the reluctant CEO. <laughs> right, yes, <laughs> I've never wanted to be one. <laughs> but you have co- real commercial people, yes, doing commercial, doing sales and stuff and for the live shows, shareholders, and, yeah. and yeah, and so you, you know sometimes you know TV might then it might then become out of your control because it's the yeah. I mean that's certainly a big part of it for me at my age is the is the advantages of having. Control editorial control over what we do yeah. outweigh the the lack of funds, yeah. and, and the lack of funds is frustrating. It's not because we can't pay the people who work on it, but to do bigger projects that require a sort of upfront budget, so that you can hire more people to do this, and you need people, you need consultants that you get in, and you need to pay them. That is still out of our reach, and that's something I'm trying to do, so we can do some sort of bigger one-off yeah. event type projects. I you would, know, I quite like a just one on one with you sitting opposite Jeremy Clarkson just shooting the breeze for well, an hour. But I mean, a boxing match the thing yeah, is a yeah, YouTube is, boxing streamed match. boxing match well I've always actually because when I did the, the carpool with uh, Stephen Fry he talked about Jeremy Clarkson no, I didn't ask him about him but because he, he'd worked with him on he'd been on QI yeah. and he said that every opinion that Jeremy's ever expressed in public as the most obnoxious reactionary childish homophobic racist load of bigotry he's mm. ever but he's funny yeah, and I mean, I met him a few times. I don't, I certainly don't know him, but I have met him a few times at kind of BBC events, mm. and I just remember laughing, mm. sort of at him, mm. at his absurdity. Mm. <laughs> this great big uncooked pudding face looming <laughs> down because he's a really tall bloke, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, I know that he's bald on top because I saw him bend over and he's got no hair there, yeah. which is really, it's just at yeah. the front. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no one can normally see it because he's so tall. Yeah. But, uh, you know, and I can't bear anything he says, but he'll still make me laugh. And I, so I, don't, I think if we did do that, I think it's very doubtful we ever will, I think we'd have a laugh, you know. And I mean, I would not be uh, averse to calling him out on this nonsense. But he, that's what's interesting about this technological shift we're seeing. Yeah is that he now accepts that cars are going to be electric and he was vehemently opposed to them. Mm. You know, and I think that's the, you know, certainly the, the angle I take with sort of pa- people who are passionate about cars. Mm. I've never been passionate one way or the other. I've sometimes hated them, think they should all be banned and sometimes want to drive a really fast one with a big engine, you know, in my, in my history. But, you know, very good friends of mine, Chris Barry being a good example from yeah. Red Dwarf, is a passionate classic car lover and he knows so much about them and he rebuilds them himself and he'll spend a day polishing his spark plugs and valve seatings, you know. And he run, he's got a beautiful collection of cars. He's got a lot of cars. 
I don't want those to go away. I want those people to carry on looking after those cars for 100 years, like we have steam trains now. You know, it's amazing. You know, it must be amazing for a, today a little kid who's grown up with iPads and phones and computer games to go to a steam train, mm. which makes all this noise and smell and, and stuff coming out of it, and it moves along. I mean, I don't know. Maybe yeah. they go, oh, it's a bit naff. <laughs> I've got a feeling they'll be impressed because I was blown away by steam trains as a kid, and I was a kid right at the tail end of commercially used, you know, like actual steam trains being used as trains before but, they But when you go into the, the science museum, they've got a lot of those old yeah, stuff. Yeah, I love but that stuff. I think the lure as a kid is you, you look at it and you try and figure it out. Work out how it works. How it works. Yeah. Nowadays, I, my issue with modern cars is you, you lift up the... Oh, there's nothing the there. Yeah, it doesn't matter what, even if it's not electric. Yeah. You just look at it. Not, it's not intuitive. No, no. I mean, I rebuilt cars as a young man. I had a Morris 1000 van which, you know, you might see in a museum now, uh, and even then was quite old. But it was like mechanic. It was like, you know, yeah. you open the bonnet, and that, there's the spark plugs, one, two, three, four. There's the HT leads that come. Oh, that's the distributor there. That's the carburetor. That's where the petrol goes in. There's the tube that the petrol goes in. It was all incredibly obviously apparent. And to take that tube off to unblock it, you did a screwdriver, and you took it off. You know, I mean, I could fix it. So I put a new gearbox and clutch in my van and put it back together and I drove it and that was in a moment when I got back in the van and put my foot on the clutch and went oh it's working oh, I've put it in gear oh it works I'm driving along I know what's going on in that gearbox yeah because yeah. <laughs> you know I'd wrecked it I'd smashed the gearbox up it was just a load of bits of metal you know so that stuff I think is a shame that kids it's a really difficult one mm. you know that doesn't it just doesn't exist. it's old technology it doesn't exist anymore really yeah so on, on, on to electric cars. People talk about 2020 as, as an inflection point yeah. for electric, the transition to electric vehicles. And people have been saying inflection point for quite for some a long time. time. <laughs> yes. And I think one of the, the biggest barriers is maybe the education piece. And like you, given the, the scope that your audience now has, your channel has pr- played a massive role and can, will continue to play a massive role in that education piece. I know, for example, um, at my company, Elmo, we, we worked with you to do our EV suitability yeah, tool. Yeah. And we just got unbelievable traction just through working with you on, on basically one email and a, and a blog post. And right. I know a friend of mine, um, a company called Right Charge is a comparison site for electric charge points. Yeah. He featured in the in the Maddie Motes um, yes. episode for you know, a 20 second clip. Yeah. And he's he's won loads of business from it. Wow! And so like, how no, do you, that is extraordinary. Yeah. How do you view the role that you're playing in doing that? It's, 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 I mean, it's slightly frightening, and I think I keep it at an emotional distance because mm. you can't go, you can't get all snooty and go. Do you know the impact of this show? You know, because I don't, I don't really know. A lot of stuff happens without my right. Uh, I, apparently, I have been told about a lot of things. <laughs> I'm quite good at forgetting. I think that's an age thing, mm. but it is. I mean, I certainly know. I mean. Um, Jordan Brompton, amazing company, um, My Energy, yeah. who did the Zappy charger. And I went to see the very first one they installed, which he now tells me wasn't really working, but they didn't want to let me. You know, there was really a proper little startup, four people. They're yeah. making these. And these are ch- uh, ch- car chargers that will take, if you've got solar panels mm-hmm. uh, and you're putting electricity out into the grid when you're not there in the daytime and you've got an electric car plugged into that, it will take all that electricity and put it in the car. So you can set it so that it just uses excess solar that goes in the grid. As soon as the house wants it, it sends it into the house. So if you put the kettle on, Amazing. it'll do that. It does it so seamlessly. And that. so they came, we did that one episode about mm-hmm. the Zappi charger, which was just like one of those things. It was very casual at the time. 
it transformed their business. There's now 70 people working for it. They've got a massive waiting list. They make hundreds of charges. They're developing a whole lot of other technology that runs your house and communicates with it, you know, which I've got in my house. I don't even know what it does. I know mm. it's doing a lot of stuff. Yeah. And all I check every now and then is if all the green lights are on, on the little box, it's all working. And if the middle one's red, that means, oh, damn, the water heater's not communicating with it. You, know? you can see why so the education piece is, is important. because otherwise It's really important. You, yeah. I think with a lot of these, these mysterious technologies, they, they sound great out of the box. But if you don't know the problems behind them yeah. and, and what challenges face consumer adoption, which is what Ollie's addressing with Elmo, you, you, you don't... Um, you don't have the audience and the participants try and come in and solve those issues yeah. alongside you with you. They just stand back and let you try yeah. and feed them the solutions uh, or let Elon Musk try and figure it out. And yeah. it needs you to go, it's good, but the charging points could be better because yes. of this, this, that, and this. Yeah. And then somebody goes, oh, that, I didn't think I could participate in this conversation, yeah. but actually I can think of a solution to that. I mean, there is, I think, that one of the recent companies I've come across, um, Charge Ferry. I hope I've got the right thing. I think it is Charge Ferry. And the, and so you're, this is particularly for people who live on in houses that don't have off-street parking, which is for it's actually thirty-nine point something percent of UK households right. don't have somewhere off the street to park. So you park in your car on the street, which is certainly what I did for many years. Um, and Charge, is it, I think it's called Charge Ferry. So you park your car there. You have an account with Charge Ferry. They have can log into an app that tells them how much you've got in your battery if it's low they come along at night with a trailer with a battery on it they plug it into your car charge your car up while you're sleeping at night yeah and then they get they leave it and they won't fill it they'll put enough in so that they know how much you've got because they'll have algorithms that tell you how much how much you do and if you want to fill it fill it because you're going on a longer journey you call them and that they do that but and there'll be a set i mean it's such a brilliant thing because it's that there'll be a set amount per month that you pay mm. and you never have to go and plug That's your great. car in you don't have to think about it you just leave it wherever it is it doesn't matter where it is parked either because they can find it on the app you know it's all those sort of things that have become possible with that tech that that combination of the of mobile tech and the internet of things which i think is equally terrifying <laughs> as it is useful yeah uh, you know because that, that's the one thing i'm absolutely convinced of there is no such thing as a secure system <laughs> you know we all know that yeah. and there's no such thing as privacy so if you accept that i just want to make sure there's no such thing as privacy in any direction so that when i meet a, a policeman and i don't think i've done anything wrong i know everything about him i know yeah. where he lives what his children are called where he goes to school what his education was that would be a more equal society that ain't going to happen. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Listeners, that's not going to happen. <laughs> that we really know who paid for Boris Johnson's holiday in the in the West Indies because we all know everything. Yeah. Then do that would be fair. You, having, having had your background from, from the Red Wars and stuff, like, I mean, do you think sci-fi inspires the, the positions we should be taking on technology? Because they've been musing over these topics for years, yeah. as you said, in the 80s. Yeah. Um, brilliant. You had Terminator, Terminator 2 followed in the yeah. early 90s, and they did try and challenge us on these concepts. I think... At the time, we sort of thought, oh, I don't know, doesn't yeah. sound very realistic to me. Yeah. But with those out there ideas, we do need to kind of question yes. privacy, charging, this, that, the yeah. other, theft. So, so do you think we should we should sort of lean into the sort of weird and wonderful questions in the sci-fi a little bit as well to try and inform our decisions of how we steer I the I think so. And I mean, I think it is true that if you if you look at it over sort of a long historical period, that, that, that it is bizarre how, how strong an influence science fiction has had on science. Mm. You know, because quite often if there's someone who is of a scientific bent and they're a kid and they watch Star Trek and then 20 years later they work for a phone company because there was a phone that went, you know, yeah. open like that. I can't remember, it was a Star Tech 15 or something. 
rubbish phone, but it flipped open like in Star Trek, and it was such an obvious follow-on. You know, they've got that stuff, and I mean, all that. You know, uh, iPads. Effectively, there were. You know, Scotty had an iPad. He didn't, but he had something that yeah. was sort of vaguely like that, like an electronic slab that did something really clever on Star Trek, which was made in the 1960s. Mm. I mean, it's extraordinary. Yeah. But I mean, I think that it's it's essential that that it's a topic that people talk about and I feel now so I, I think I managed to keep up with technology quite well for my peers until my until I was about 60 and I have to admit that since then I've just gone oh god I can't I can't remember another password I can't set up another account in another city. Can yeah. you do, you know, now work with some very nice young people that, <laughs> that sort of look out. I just can't, you know, you, I think you do reach a point where you can't manage the, the data input anymore. It's just too much. It's getting quicker as well. And it's so quick. And yeah. there's so much different things, you know. I mean, that, that stuff is, is a little bit overwhelming. I think I've found that. Well, that's a point to you, to you both. Since 2015, 2016, the electric car conversation is, has been speeding up. Yeah. Drastically. Incredible changes. Did you did you, know. you find interest was a sort of tailwind of, of like for instance if, if if discussions bubble up around the cyber truck, do you suddenly get renewed wave of people kind of coming in and finding your channel? Yes, and 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 being you know and then and the and the that's what's interesting is the reservations change. Yeah. So that initially it was all um, you know range anxiety or there's nowhere to charge it or um, can't tow. It can't tow very popular one uh, but also the batteries will only last that was thanks to Mr Clarkson the batteries will only last three years then you have to you literally have to throw them away you literally drive your car to a dump take the battery and literally throw it even though it's worth half the value of the bloody car if not more you know as if someone's going to throw that away so that was a big thing because he said you'll throw the batteries away after three years so I'm driving a car now that's 10 years old with the batteries. It's perfectly fine. You know, it's not, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The batteries will outlast the car. All the cars will fall to bits long before the batteries. And particularly the n more recent generations of batteries. One, it's the battery chemistry, but it's the battery management software. They has refined so much that those, those batteries are protected so well from stupid charging mistakes like I made on the first, uh, on my Leaf, you know, which is... You know, you wouldn't do it on a phone now, but you, effectively, I the battery was full. I drove to the shop four miles away, drove back, plugged it back in. Yeah, it had one bar. It didn't even have one bar missing. It did not need to be charged, and that damages the battery. All the other things I've done, rapid charges, fine. Doesn't worry about that. Mm. But that was a mistake, and so I've lost a bar. You know, I've lost range on the on the battery in seventy two thousand miles. But I've driven seventy two thousand miles in it for very very little. <laughs> In and terms of fuel costs, staggeringly little, you know. And what about breakdown costs? Because, you know, a car that old, an ICE car that's that old and has done that many miles, tends to break yeah. down quite a lot. Mm -hmm. there's, nothing, there's not really, I mean, punctures. I've had two <coughs> punctures. Yeah. Brakes could fail, you know, all those things. Light bulbs could go in lights, all those things. Yeah. Wipers. I've had a new rear wiper blade in that time, but mm -hmm. that's it. Yeah. No oil changes, no catalytic converter, nothing. There isn't. Yeah. The motor needs uh, lubricating after half a million miles. And in the, tes the latest Teslas, after a million miles, right. the motor needs to have a full factory lubrication. Don't try and cheat. <laughs> Go into the, take it in, and they'll do a proper lubrication of it because it's two bearings. Yeah. There's nothing to it. You know, Are they talking about technology as well at the moment where they're going to sort of have dual batteries where one charges very quickly to give you um, access to? I don't know, twenty percent of your charge, right? Really quick, and they can they can dump charge into that very quickly, and then the other one will be. Oh, maybe of, I've not heard of that. That's a, uh, I think uh, they're talking about Tesla buying a, a company that was oh, that was doing that it's was possible. doing that, and then they I mean, may the, be looking the to thing it. they're working on now, which I think is much more sensible, because I think that in reality, 
r- rapid charging is is the mindset that we have now with fuel with liquid fuel. Mm-hmm. So you think, well, I just want to go and it's done. Well, okay. So then what do you? Then I drive around the corner and leave the car there for five hours doing nothing while I'm at work or while I'm shopping. Or Why don't you not stop there and go? Why don't you go around the corner, plug it in, so it's charging slowly. In that five hours, you add 150 miles. Mm. You've not done anything. You've not waited for a second. I've never waited to charge an electric car. I will. I refuse to wait. If there's any waiting involved, I won't do it. <laughs> because you plug it in, and you go and do something else. Yeah. You don't want to, you know. And that's that's. So I think you want cars that charge, you know, relatively fast. And there are times when it's useful to be able to top it up very quickly on motorways, and that is definitely happening, and it's getting faster. So it's not that you don't have that, but you the mindset you you need to develop is. I'm driving to see Auntie Mary. There's a car park opposite, uh, you know, around the corner from her apartment or whatever. Mm. You drive into there, you plug your car in, you leave it there for the seven hours, nine hours you're at Auntie Mary's, five hours, whatever it is. You're adding 40 miles an hour on a on a normal charger. So in five hours, you've filled the bloody tank again, mm. you know, and you haven't waited. You've yeah. not. You've been doing something else. That's the but, important. And, and also, I mean, the best example is. It charges when you're asleep. Yes, if, if you're lucky enough. If you're to lucky have, enough to have someone charging charge at home, yeah. it's like it's like as convenient as your mobile phone. Like yeah, driving also, to I a petrol station is the most inconvenient you could do if you're if you're driving. Yeah, it's somewhere. very inconvenient. Yeah, it's not going to when you don't go to petrol stations. So on the rare occasions now when we've got a hire car, you know, when we're on holiday or something, and you drive to a garage, I go, oh my god, <laughs> yeah. I've forgotten what this is like. There's a queue, yeah. and you got to yeah. wait, and then you yeah. pull up, and then there's the smelly stuff, and it's top yeah. that yeah. smell. Is toxic. It's carcinogenic. Yeah, the fumes that come off petrol are dangerous to human beings. I mean, you shouldn't breathe that shit in. Well, we imagine what city life would be without all those noxious chemicals. You forget yeah. how horrible the streets of London can smell sometimes until you've. Been and I mean, out. we're particularly cursed because of diesel. <coughs> you know, I mean, this is a and this is I think is a legitimate reason for people to be skeptical about electric cars because. 15 years ago, 20 years ago, they were told how clean diesel was and how good diesel was, and they were encouraged to buy diesel cars by yeah. the Labour government. Uh, you know, and you got tax breaks for buying a diesel car because they're cleaner. Yeah. And, you know, that was deeply and profoundly wrong and a brilliant piece of lobbying by the fossil fuel industry and the car mm. manufacturers to go, oh, this is a clean diesel. Mm. You know, those words, the words clean should not be associated with coal, gas yeah. or diesel <laughs> or petrol. There's no such thing as clean coal or clean diesel. I think also people have this belief that, that they may drive to Scotland in one trip. Yeah. Think, oh, I don't want to stop for half an hour. It's like you will go definitely. You will stop die for a, if you don't. If you don't break. stop, your yeah. bladder will explode. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's going to do that in one sitting ever. <laughs> How optimistic are you generally about combating climate change and or, re- or reducing? CO2? I think I'm in. I mean, I think I'm actually not in despair. Okay, That's but something. I'm not terribly optimistic. So I'm on yeah. the kind of I'm on the tipping point. You know, going this could get really bad. Mm-hmm. You know, and particularly with what's happened recently in Australia because being married to an Australian and knowing when you know you know when you see a fire there's a fire in Peru or a hurricane I've never been there I don't know it looks terrible or you know the tsunami I've never been to those towns where the waves came so it kind of was slightly removed when you see a building you know (laughs) and a road that you've driven down and and you know that you've got relatives that live not that far away yeah and it's on fire and the whole bloody thing's burnt it becomes very very plausible and we were looking at a house last year in Australia that we that we couldn't buy, but we were going, oh, if we were going to buy one, and I was going to retire to Australia and just walk around in a pair of stained shorts <laughs> swearing at children, that would be the house. That's gone. That's now a concrete slab with a chimney in it, and there's Jeez. nothing left. The whole 
and it was in the most stunning, beautiful rainforest. Yeah. I mean, that's bizarrely, that stuff grows back. I can't believe it. So the trees don't die when they're, bur- they're burnt to fuck, you know, just blackened. Yeah. But they actually do come back. You know, in a couple of years, there'll be forest there again, which is extraordinary. But it was the house is just it was a wooden yeah. kind of bungalow with a, a you know a chimney. So the chimney and the the concrete floor are still there. There's nothing left. Well, there's, so, there's something about things catching fire that bring home the apocalypse. Yeah, yeah. Better more than anything. But then else. what happened after? You know, two weeks after all the worst fires, there was so there were some people who got burnt out and then flooded out. So the rains yeah. that came were they had in one part of New South Wales they had over a month's worth of rain in in an hour. So it just flooded everything. Everything was underwater, you know, after all that suffering with the flood. But it's not climate change, mate, because we burn clean coal. <laughs> the guy that Pillock, that is their prime minister, Scott Morrison, was in... On holiday, wasn't he? Oh, he was on holiday. Yeah, he's such an... I think, finally, he's been done in politically, I hope so. But he came into the Australian Parliament with a lump of coal to shout at the opposition who are saying we need we should install solar. He's going, what are you scared of? It's just coal. What You've you got coal-ophobia. Yeah. What wasn't revealed at that time was that the coal company that gave him that lump of coal had spent hours varnishing that coal because if you touch coal with your bare hands, it has toxic residue on it that can be poisonous. But, but you know, yeah. it's fine. Because you, know, you don't, you know, fruit, people right? who work in coal mines have gloves on. But he held it with his bare hand, so they'd varnished it. <laughs> so, are you, I mean, are you optimistic in the electric transition? Is that? Yeah, I think that will happen because I think it will make commercial sense. So, in terms of renewable energy and electric electrification of transport, and I really want to focus the attention not on cars but on buses and vans. Yeah, those things will go electric much faster than pe- people's private cars. Um, buses in particular in London, I mean, you're already there. The post office, half the post office delivery vans in London are electric now. They will all be, that's going to happen in the next couple of years. Right. That you'll walk down a street in London, all the taxis, all the delivery vans, all the trucks and buses will be electric. Private cars will be petrol till, you know, I'm well past I've calked it. <laughs> but there will there will be, you know, less and less of them. Yeah. The, the, the range of electric cars will improve. The battery technology will improve. The integration of electric cars into the grid—that's mm. the—that's the next step. So I've just had a vehicle-to-grid unit fitted in my house. Amazing, and that means I can charge. You know, if nothing else, you can explain this to people who are petrol heads, yeah. and they go, "Oh, so I can charge at night on very cheap, clean electricity from wind and nuclear, five p less than that a kilowatt hour, and potentially—and this is legislation that's just gone through recently—you can sell that electricity at." six o'clock at night when the wholesale price goes off the scale because of the demand for 25p yeah. a kilowatt hour so you sell you buy 10 kilowatt hours at night you sell 10 kilowatt hours a day you make money <laughs> and obviously it's on a micro scale at that level so you're not going to make that much an individual's never going to make that much money you have a company that's invested in a five gigawatt hour battery and they buy five gigawatt hours in the night time for mm. bugger all and they sell five gigawatt for hundreds of thousands of pounds that message has got through to big investors, to hedge funds, to people with billions of pounds to invest, and they're investing it like it's going out of style. And that stuff is growing at an exponential rate. It's phenomenal around, around the world, not just here. I was, um, I was chatting to Graham Cooper, who's the head of um, electric oh, vehicles. Graham's the amazing. Yeah, he's yeah. amazing. At the move 2020 yesterday, and he was saying everyone's up in arms without really, with, without really understanding it about you know, electric cars are gonna they're gonna crash the grid. Yeah, yeah. Blah blah blah. And he's saying actually it's the conversion to 
all the new houses with electric heaters and all the old gas-powered houses going to, going electric, that's where the, it's the more of a challenge lies yeah. for the grid, and that's what they're really focusing on. Yeah, yes, it's, it is interesting, isn't it? And that, but that could be mitigate, could be mitigated with electric cars integrated into that yeah. system. Because that one of the other ones, which I always, whenever anyone says something with confidence, I always totally believe them at that moment. Mm. So a Nazi could say to me, <laughs> "We need to get rid of all the Jews." I go, "Oh Christ! All right, well we better have then." Until someone else says, actually, that's called genocide and it's really bad. Oh, yeah, it's really bad. Oh, I hate Nazis. I'm not terribly. So when people say to me, oh, if you use vehicle to grid, it's going to destroy your battery. You go, all oh, right. Mm. Until you meet a battery scientist to go, oh, actually, it makes them better. They, they actually function better if they're charged and discharged gently, which is what you're doing with a, a vehicle to grid. What hammers a battery is what Tesla advertise. You can go from naught to 60 in 2.8 seconds. Yeah. That literally... <laughs> Shags on battery. It, and it's really interesting because it means that now energy companies are now becoming incredibly interested in electric vehicles because the yeah. valuable energy companies, customers of the future are going to be the electric vehicle drivers. Yeah, yeah. and they're movable assets. Yeah. Right? yeah. So when you look at an electric vehicle as, as, a, uh, as a battery mobile on wheels, battery, yeah. a battery on wheels it, is. Yeah. it definitely changes your, your perception yeah. of them. Yeah. Um, and these integrated systems. I think th the only issue with this is I, I feel a little shortchanged in the UK that we can't just say, well, you know what we need to do is work on a load of solar panels because we get 300 days of sunshine yeah. a year. Some places are presumably going to absolutely yeah. nail it if you're in New Mexico or something. Oh, God. I mean, and the difference, what's happened in Australia, Australia's a very good example, is the uptake of domestic solar has been phenomenal. Yeah. Much you, you would be amazed if you drive around Australia now. You'll just, you, you can do I spy to see the house that doesn't have solar panels because they're that rare, you know, it's very unusual. But what that's done is, in the past, coal, the coal industry was digging up coal, burning it in power stations, generating electricity, and their peak demand was the middle of the day. It's different to here, because that's when people had air conditioning on, you know, that's when you'd use the most electricity. Mm -hmm. uh, and now the peak demand is covered by, for, to a huge extent, covered by solar, because the solar maximum matches the, the, the demand maximum. So it's much better suited to solar in Australia than we are here because often you know we would get the maximum solar in the middle of the day but the, our maximum use is early evening mm. so you and that we can't and that's what batteries do is they shift that possibility but in Australia it's exactly it, it matches perfectly you can see the demand curve in, on the grid fits in with the solar generation so what that's done is mess up the traditional coal because there's no demand for it so they turn the coal power stations off when they turn them off they cool and stuff cracks I didn't even know that. So then they have to re they have to close it down for three months to fix it. No one ever talks about that. How no. much subsidy burning coal companies that, that run coal coal burning plants are really technically frail and com complex, like nuclear plants. Mm -hmm. If you turn them on and off, which is what they're having to do now because there's no demand, they get screwed up. They get messed up, and they have to. And the, when you see the amount of time that a wind turbine is operating in its entire life over, say, twenty five or thirty years. I don't know what the percentage is. It's quite high. Mm. Then you see the amount of time that a coal-burning power plant is. It's it's offline sometimes for a year or a year and a half because it's having to be completely refurbished and all the pipes have cracked and they've got to weld them up and it's under enormous pressure. You know, all those things. That's never, never used in those arguments. Yeah. So the unreliable intermittent power that we have is natural gas, coal, and nuclear. Mm. The reliable stuff that is really, particularly in this country, offshore wind is so extraordinarily monstrous. We're, we're the, we're, there's nowhere in the world that has more. We have the most of any country on earth mm. of offshore wind. And, we, and the general public have no idea.
I don't know. The other day, it was 57% of all our electricity on a weekday was from wind. Wow. Which is extraordinary. Is that, and that, that is unusual. Hurricane? When it, the, oh, hurricane's helpful. Yeah. The, the, the it was actually cor- just post cor- the hurricane. Yeah, during yeah, the hurricane, yeah, they had right. to turn everything down because it was a bit too windy, but then they <laughs> turned it back up. <laughs> so in, the, in a, like 60, 50, 60 mile an hour wind, wallop. You know, but 80 miles an hour, I think it gets a bit... Hairy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so conscious that you've got to get across I do have town. To get, yes, yeah. sorry, so sorry. Let's, let's go. I'm terribly the, sorry. Yeah. Just do the quick fire. Quick fire for sure. We like to end with some quick fire questions. Yes. So, firstly, uh, without wherever you wanted to go with this one, a prediction for the future. Oh lord. Oh lord. Okay. I've got one because I've got a bit obsessed about it. The global population will start to reduce. There you go. Interesting. Put that in your pipe. Any time frames? Uh, by the end of the century. By the end of this century. And it's not because somebody suggests genocide to No, no, there's no genocide. I just want to point out that I really wouldn't agree with the Nazis. Foreshadowing (laughs) your own leather making. Oh, God, I'm going to get a tweet. So you think all Jews should be good. No, I really, really don't. Human leather shoes. um, uh, Population will... will Population, yeah. I'm I'm fascinated by what's happening globally with population. The, The birth rate is very, very low globally. Yeah. It's only in this country, country it's actually. Yeah. And what we need desperately in this country, which I think is beautifully ironic, is immigra- immigration. We mm. need people to come and live here to do all the jobs that I'm I'm old. Mm. I can't do it. Mm. You oh. know. Uh, anyway, so there's that. So I predict a drop in the population. I was gr- I grew up in my entire life with the fear of the population explosion. There's too many, mm. which is always there's too many people in Africa and India. There's too many dark people. That's really what that's saying. It's not saying yeah. there's too many people. And clearly, we have managed to, you know, even though there is terrible hunger and malnutrition, it's not as bad as it was. When I was a kid, yeah, it true. was much, much worse. True. So we are feeding an unbelievably huge population in the world, and it's not going to get bigger. When you see that the birth rate in Sri Lanka, no, not Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, yeah. which I would assume is off the scale, yeah. 26 children per woman. No, it's 2.4, the same as when I was born. They are saying actually that some some countries in Africa have responded to the population growth even quicker than yeah. forecast. They thought we were going to take thirty years. But it's, after it's 10 absolutely years. it's so proven. It's down to educating women yeah. and a and a just about functioning healthcare system. If you have those two things, the birth rate just goes. So the only country in the world with a high birth rate is Afghanistan. Okay, that's there's nowhere else. Uzbekistan, it's one child per woman, which is yeah. which is population. It means you're, the population is dropping. Yeah. Russia, it's 0.04 children per woman, which means the guy that I wrote a, read a book about this, the guy that wrote the book said that means that by the year 2100, there will be no Russians. <laughs> it's that <laughs> catastrophic. So mm-hmm. what are the government doing? They pay you $10,000 equivalent in, a, in Russia if you have a baby. Wow. If you're a woman, you get paid. And there's somewhere else is hungry. Hungary, if you have uh, more than one child, you get lifelong income. So if a woman has two children, and then it increases if she has three and four. So if you have four kids, you never have to work. You have enough money to live for the rest of your life and your pension, because their their birth rate is so low. It's so interesting. It is fascinating, isn't it? It's exactly the opposite of everything I was brought up to believe. I think it's part of very low here. It is very low here. Yeah, but part of what makes us worry is we worry that today's solutions will not be tomorrow's solutions because the population will grow. Yes, and then therefore we won't be able to to do it. So it could be exactly opposite that the crisis and the difficulty is a declining population, which means a smaller workforce, which means. You know, a lot of things, lower tax income, all those things. It's yeah. a really difficult thing to adjust down. We've got quite used to adjusting up. That yeah. We've got more people than we had. I don't know, how, you know, in a kind of geopolitical and geoeconomic sense, how you manage a declining population with less workforce. 
That's a, that's a fairly I optimistic. So that, I don't know if, if it's optimistic or not, and it might not be right. But certainly won't there be around is a, to find out. No, no, I definitely <laughs> won't. <laughs> you might because you might be genetically modified so, yes. to live forever. So. Um, <laughs> the second one is a startup book, resource, or tool that you'd recommend. Oh, I will. A, a, a podcast is that right to advertise a podcast? Yes, it's kind of annoying. No, it's right. no, no. no. They don't think they're, they're not, it's American, yeah, so yeah, it's good. Right. It's called How I Built This. Yes. Good. Oh, you know it. It's no, good. I heard it's exceptional. All oh, right. No, I think it is very good. Yeah, it's a PBS show, but it's a it's a podcast as well, and it depends who it is. But some of them, you just go, How did that man who made some biscuits? sell his company for 800 million dollars 10 years later you know there's yeah, a lot yeah. of those stories it's like the, the not, they're not all like that but you know there are those sort of things yeah. you know the lady who cultivated bee pollen and then turned it then someone helped to turn it into burt's bees which oh that's right burt's bees is huge yeah multi-billion yeah. pound company and even ben and jerry the ice cream guys yeah. who are like a couple of you know they're just they're two stoner hippies just want cream you go, well, we got some like cream in and then like i mixed it and we froze it up and it was like have hey, some of this you know real proper <laughs> Hippies. Yeah. Phenomenal. Um, it's probably worth a plug for for the fully charged book, which the fully charged book, yes, yes please, is a brilliant resource. <laughs> Thank you. And that's available. It's available. It's on Amazon. It's doing rather well actually. So we relatively did. recently. This yeah, year. yeah. So that was a crowdfunded book. So I, a publisher I'd worked with a bit and done a few books with Unbound. Uh huh. That, that do crowdfunded books. So by the time you've written a book and it is printed, you've sold you know, thousand copies. So that yeah. pays for everything. So then you can, you know, you think you can go on from that. But right. um, yeah, so yeah, they're very good. And we did the, the the fully charged guide to electric vehicles and renewable energy. I think mm. I might have got the, cause the title changed so many times. And it, people like it. It's got a lot of, Graham's written for it. Yeah. So there's a lot of good people have written. Ewan McTurk, he's my, my hero, he's a battery chemist. He knows what how batteries work. <laughs> so when, and I love it when I see that on Twitter. Well, your, your fancy batteries won't last. And then Ewan is very Scottish. Actually, I'll let me describe to you exactly how they do work and why they will work and why you're wrong. Here we go. 500 long string of tweets with an immense you know, detailed knowledge of how batteries work. Really good. Well, that sounds like a fantastic resource for anybody. Yeah, it is. I think yeah. it's because my what I've written to it. So if you've heard me waffle and go, I couldn't bear to read anything that bloke's written. Don't worry, I only write the preface. It's very short. Just go, electric cars are really cool. Bye. And then there's from some proper people know what they're talking about i think the phrase for electric cars is they're totally gay if your son is yes to. yeah that's the the hat tip this one we probably god knows if we need to help you out with this one but if you could have dinner if we could help arrange dinner with anybody that you could have dinner with them tonight uh, as a dan have a good old chin wag who would that be or could be living or dead we, we, or will, we will reanimate the dead you okay. can reanimate the dead i mean i would quite like to meet nikola tesla cool. i think he'd be a Frightening. I'd like to, it to be quite a big table, and he's quite a long way away from me. But I'd like to overhear what he's yeah, saying. His Tesla call just pointed yes, at you, yes, ready. Because he might guess yeah. if he doesn't like what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also Edison. I mean, I'm fascinated by those dudes. Edison, Thomas Edison, would be fascinating. They're threatened to be quite a good film about their their back and forth. Yeah, in I, I watched it recently. It wasn't. It, it, it threatened it, to be, but apparently yeah, wasn't. All. It wasn't totally clear. It didn't really. I, I, having read about them, I knew more about them than the film portrayed you know there was a lot of other but yeah it wasn't terrible i've seen worse so you'd have them either side of a table with you just watching them. yeah so i'd like i'd like thomas edison nicola tesla jason statham okay and i say that because i think he's very funny and i saw him in a bar okay and i went oh my god that's jason statham and i didn't say anything. i didn't do anything because i was scared of him he looked terrifying and then as, as we were leaving i got a nod I got a very subtle, slightly angry nod of recognition yeah. from Jason. Yeah. So as I, as I was walking past, I was like going, I'm not looking, I'm just going to pretend I didn't yeah. see him. And then I saw him go, 
like that. It was really short. Like, what? So I would you, quite, you validated. Yeah, I think, he's, I think he's yeah. very. He just makes me. I, he's the only action hero I've ever seen that has actually made me like have a bladder issue as an old man. I've wet myself laughing because I just think, what's that one? The ridiculous one where he has to charge himself up with electricity. Uh, jolt. Was it Jolt or? I've not seen it's that. It's hysterical. <laughs> he has to have a massive adrenaline rush. So, oh, I've seen it in French. I don't know why I've seen oh, it in it's French. The most ridiculous. It but French. it's so funny. Hypertension so, in French. Yeah, is that what it's called? Yeah, it could be something like that. It in could French, be. It's, it? But there was a scene where he's in a marketplace and he's starting to fade, mm. and he's with the beautiful Asian uh, secret agent woman, and he's going to die. And, and so the, she knows the only way she can save his life is to have sex with him then and there in public in front of thousands of people in the market with chickens and baskets and fruit and veg. So they're on the on the floor in this market shagging. And yeah, that's the only way he's going to live. And this is how he gets it's his the, charge. It's the oh, yeah. He basically dies if he doesn't get enough adrenaline. So yeah. he always has to have adrenaline. That seems like a good excuse. So funny. It's a great way to construct a thriller film. Yeah, yeah, and probably uh, uh, only Jason Statham could deliver. He, yeah. he delivered it brilliantly. Yeah. Really good comedy. Very, yeah. very good. Anyway, yeah. So that's a really odd mixture. I'm trying to think of someone else. Uh, Jermaine Greer. I quite like Jermaine Greer because Jermaine Greer is a, a wrote a book in the 70s called The Female Eunuch, sort of pr- proto-feminist. Mm-hmm. But she she varies. It depends on which day you get her. So an academic. She teaches at uh, well, she did at Cambridge University, Australian. Really articulate, brilliant woman, amazing grasp of history of not just history, but the history of patriarchy, of feminism, of, you know, has an amazing take on the world. And I've seen her talk at three occasions, two of them she was blisteringly brilliant. Mm-hmm. One of them she was just a mad old lady. So I think she's very, <laughs> and you just go, what the fuck is she talking about? You know? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, not you, you might get her on a bad day. But, uh, you know, it's worth g- Google Jermaine Greer. You'll be... You'll, just sit her next to Tesla. Yeah, this is a hell, yeah. of, a, a hell of a dinner party. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, an, that's enough. That would be terrifying. Uh, yeah. I'll uh, do the cooking, though, because I quite like cooking. Veg, veg, vegetables? Or? I might murder some animals for them if they really want to, but in front of them. <laughs> on the table. <laughs> I'll hack them up. <laughs> and the last one of my questions is the best advice you've given or, or received. Best advice I received, without question, very much specifically to the, to what we've been talking about with fully charged and carpool and all that stuff, is from a man called Leo Laporte, who does a, a, a very long running tech series, a podcast series called uh, This Week in Tech, mm-hmm. Twit. And I went to see him a couple of times, same age as me, similar kind of traditional TV broadcasting background. Started doing podcasts from a spare bedroom way back, like two thousand four. And, but was a tech nerd, so knew how to do do it all. And I went to see him, and he was a great guy. We got on very well, and he just said, just keep putting them out. Just keep putting them out. <laughs> and that was that thing where, at that stage, I could make a thing, like the pilot for Fully Charged, and I could put that out, and 4,000 people watch it, and then it's gone, because mm. it's swept away in the kind of vast torrent of, of new things. So you do another one, yeah. and then you do another one. And when you do that, that... that simple thing it's not a everyone knows it's not a genius but it hadn't I just thought you do that one thing and then that's it mm-hmm. but that's definitely not it that's day one and then yeah. you do the next one so that's how we've gone from five subscribers to 650,000 is for being consistent putting them out Keep doing it. and you can really see it for those periods where we've legitimately 
for whatever reason, moving offices didn't have the stuff, haven't had it, whatever, and you don't put them out, you see everything, all the numbers drop. You know, yeah. our numbers are pretty consistent, they, and they're consistently kind of going up, but very slowly, but they're going up. And then you do do that, and it just falls away. People, it's quite understandable, you know, people forget. I forget the podcasts that I've loved that stopped being made. You know, they're mm. gone. Yeah, I can't remember them, but... So that's that was a good bit of advice. I don't think I've ever given anyone any. I think if my children were here, they would just be shaking their head. No, Dad, you never gave anyone any useful advice. I begged my daughter to have children because I wanted grandchildren when she was about 18. And she told me that was the best contraceptive advice she'd ever had. And she doesn't have any children. She's now 23. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't think I'm good at I can't imagine that I've ever given any good advice. I cannot. Well, you've given, I mean, that was, I'm sure this would be a very... A, I, shoot a wide. If you're doing an interview, make sure you get a wide. I know that just okay. from editing so many interviews going, what do I cut to? Uh, I need to cut that out. Yeah. The wide. Save it's quite, quite useful for us when we know that it's a, a journey of a thousand steps. Mm. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And well, you've been a great sport. And we like to end by giving you the last word to our listeners. So is there anything you'd like to say to them? Oh, heavens. Um, There's an event. Oh, there is an event. I was going to say, be nice to each other. <laughs> That's good too. Yeah. So but they're, come, they're a rowdy bunch. Our but listeners. be nice to each other at Fully Charged Live. Yes. Uh, Twenty twenty at Farnborough Airfield, very near a train station. There's a big exhibition centre. There'll be lots of signs. You can find out about it on fullycharged.show, mm -hmm. where you get tickets and all that stuff. Every electric car you've ever heard of, seen of, dreamt of will be there, and some more. Very possibly some other electric machines that don't need wheels. Oh, wow. Mm. Wow. And, oh, God, I shouldn't have said that because I don't want to spook it, but we're very close. I'm cross, crossing my fingers. Uh, and then everything to do with renewables in your home, uh, solar batteries, water heaters that use only the sun, da, 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 all that stuff, but loads more. I mean, I, I don't want to restrict it down to that. And amazing talks, really brilliant contributors and panel discussions and things like that that have been incredibly popular. I mean, really successful it, it depends very much who you get, but we get some amazing people who are now very keen to do it because it's a really good, you know, platform to do that on. Uh, and also, I think there, there, there's the thing we never expected, but has really taken off, is the conversion. So last year we had a Ferrari, a 1972 Ferrari electric conversion that was exquisitely done, mm -hmm. and people just could not believe it. And that car is uh, five seconds faster, not to 60, as an electric vehicle than the original petrol one was oh, when it came out brand new in 1972. Unreal. You know, it is, and the guy drives it every day. It's his daily driver. He drives a red Ferrari. That, is, that does it's got about 150 miles range on a charge bloody and cool. it looked great it looks like james bond would be in it or so somebody cool. yeah no it's very cool so that stuff so there's all a huge range of converted electric vehicles there from little cars to big trucks and you know all sorts of things buses and you know lots of stuff and lots of electric motorbikes we're gonna have a lot of electric motorbikes this uh, this year because a lot of new ones have come out and some of those i can't ride a motorbike mm. I suppose technically I can, but I'm just too scared because mm -hmm. they are so. I've ridden a, a very powerful electric motorbike around a car park with the guy that had built it, going, "Be no, don't twist it. Be just let let your skin move on top of the throttle." <laughs> and I went, and I was sitting on it, and just went, "Oh my god!" I mean, the movement of that thing. Yeah. That, that thing is one and a half seconds, not to sixty, yeah, on no. one wheel because it's accelerating oh. so hard, and all the weights over the front wheel. You know. Yeah. It's, it, 
just terrible. That's it, it broke the record at the Isle of Man TT. So, you know, all those things are extraordinary. So a lot of that stuff is on display. And there's lots of stuff for kids. Just, I'm really plugging it too yeah, much now. That's all right. And the fully charged book will have, be available on a, <laughs> on a little table. And I'll sign... Surely before people can go and start watching Red Dwarf again as well. Mm -hmm. Some people might go and watch Red Dwarf. Yeah, there's a new Red Dwarf coming out. Yeah, I should mention that. But I don't know exactly when. It's sort of Easter and it's on Dave on in Dave. the UK. Yeah. Brilliant. I can't wait. Well, it's been such fun to chat to you. Oh, thank you so and much. Keep, keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Big fans. I will do my best. Thank, thank you, you very much for well. having me. Cheers. All right. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this or any of our other conversations, we'd love to get your feedback. Our Twitter handle is at the startup Mike, M-I-C. Or get us an email, audiored at startupmicrodose.com. If you're feeling particularly generous of spirit, a review on iTunes would go a long way to ensuring that we can continue to bring you these conversations. Finally, this recording could not have happened without the support of Founders Factory backed Entail. Their podcasting software and studio in the Daily Mail building, London, are as ever the unassuming stars of our show. Check out entail.co. And thank you for listening. Goodbye.